and we're back episode 88 of the panoramic outdoors podcast 88 eric lindros there hopefully lasts a little longer than eric did in the chell uh maybe more about patrick kane kind of career but uh, had Derek Croker on, the regional fisheries manager for the province of Manitoba. Great conversation with Derek. We got a real insight and uh, peek behind the scenes for how fishing decisions get made at like the government level. Also super exciting that the government is like coming on to the podcast and having a conversation with us. We, we get, a like I said, a behind the scenes look at how some of these decisions are made. But before that, mm-hmm. uh, got the three amigos here sitting around the table Sheldon out in Brandon. How's it going, Shelly? Oh, you know, man, I'm just, I'm really good, actually. It's uh, beautiful. It's actually been really beautiful the last little while here in Brandon on the western part of the province. We got a bit of rain, which everyone needed, uh, the farmers especially, probably the gardeners and everyone else. But we got some rain lately, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, the end of this week, that's for sure. Chase, how are you doing here in, here in St. Andrews there? Yeah, I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. There's uh, no complaints here. Um, same thing, just kind of, uh, this week taking a bit of a slow week, but looking forward to heading into the weekend and either getting on the water or in the woods or something. Yeah. Hopefully there's ample opportunity for that now. I know myself, I, uh, spent the weekend last weekend putting up a garden fence and let me tell you, we did that the old fashioned way with like a post pounder, actually a makeshift post pounder. And we basically hand dug the holes um, I feel like having the right equipment or even some power equipment would have made the big difference there. But uh, I got assigned a duty, which was to put up a nice fence, and uh, we got it done. Yeah, equipment definitely goes a long way, especially in the in the acreage world. Um, buddy Lewis was kind of uh, poking me a little bit, asking, you know, how, how do you find the yard work on the acreage? And I said, well, you know, most of it's not bad, but if you have the right equipment that's that's the ticket to uh, to making it work because like rototilling my garden with that little itty bitty rototiller that that we had there was not cutting it and and uh you know if a guy had one of those uh like a Kubota man you could have it done in like half an hour so instead of uh an entire day of tilling so I feel you on the uh, equipment front Totally. And like speaking of right equipment, I think that was the first weekend this year that I actually didn't pop into my uh, Merino Woolove. Uh, and the only reason being that right now I have the like essential base layers and uh, I'm, I'm hoping we get the our new shipment in, which is on route. Uh, we know they got some brand new tanks coming in. They got their golf shirts. They got their short underwear. And what I'm just learning here, like, I mean, the more I wear it, the more I learn, but I just saw 17.5 microns uh, thick, which means it's extra soft, extra breathable and dries even quicker. So that means it keeps the moisture off you. So uh, maybe I'm not wearing it on that 30 degree day, but in the morning, you know, it keeps me dry, keeps me loose, keeps me in the game. So if you want to get into wool love, we love it. I know Chase wears it all the time. Sheldon loves that antimicrobial uh, factor to it but if you want to get into some wool love check them out wool.love on the internet and uh, don't forget to use our gift code panoramic 10 that gets you 10 percent off at the store if you want to use it on the bundles that actually gets you 25 percent off right so um, there's all kinds of opportunities to get you in some wool love keep you dry keep you warm and keep you in the game so 
uh, without ado on my end, Sheldon, what have you been up to? I, I, I heard you went on an adventure. Is that, is that true? Um, I don't know. I don't think so, but <laughs> I am going on an adventure and I got a couple little stories to tell you. First of all, I got totally soaked by like a, I don't know, 75 to 80 year old man today. He was selling, um, a back like a frame pack right and it was like 45 bucks and i was looking out online and i'm like you know what i'm gonna go and check it out so <clears throat> went over there had my cash with me and uh knocked on the door and this little old lady answers the door and she's just the politest lady ever she's come on in and you know so i could kind of smell their cooking supper and i was like well you know it smells like you're making ribs today and she's like nope and i'm like oh i'm like it's too bad i wish i could have got it right maybe you'd invite me in for supper and you know i was just trying to like you know heat them up a little bit so maybe i can get a good deal on this backpack right heat them so up anyways, or the ribs up well it was going to be ribs later at my own house because she didn't invite me but um so yeah we started talking me and this this guy and he shows me the bag and and i was like okay i'm like well how much were you were you wanting for it? and he's like ah he's like 40 45 bucks i'm like well i only brought 20s i'm like would you take 40 and he's like well actually he's like this is actually a donation prize or a donation gift for like a houses for habitat type deal in brandon which is called brandon builders so he's like so he's like really he's like do you really want to cheap out on this i'm like you know what i'm like no so i freaking gave him 60 bucks and i said you know this is my my good thing i did for the day so i gave him 60 60 bucks for the frame pack and now he can use that money to go buy hardware or whatever for building houses for um yeah it's like how i can't remember what it's called i have to go look it up but one of those programs right so I kind of got hosed by him, so I went in there thinking I'd grease him up and try to get a good deal, and he just totally made it backhand and told me to go home, but whatever. So now I'm getting ready to go on a fishing trip. I leave on Monday, which will be in, I think the day this releases, I'll be leaving, and I'm going for seven days up north to a a camp, um, doing my COVID due diligence and going straight there, going to get into camp, and I'm just going to fish for a week and take some video, do some photography. But I do got to give a few shout outs while I'm telling this little story is that first of all, I I got some bait that I got to pick up at Fairford from Nate's Baits. Um, if, you, if you're ever looking for bait and you're looking for a guy to get it from, check out Nate's Baits online there on Facebook or Instagram. He's got a pretty good operation. It's family owned. So support them where you can. I've been getting bait from them for, I don't know, six, seven, eight years now. And every year I phone him. He's a super nice guy. He has stuff ready for me, frozen. And even asked me like how big of how, how big a bait do you want like do you want it salted do you want it whatever and he does it kind of to order for me i don't know if he does that for everyone but at least check him out or give him a call and ask him ask some questions and the second thing is this camp is like a fly-in right and um all train bear hunts in thompson it's run by Corey grant he's been on a podcast of ours before but he is helping me out and flying in a bunch of stuff for me so to make my trip a little bit less stressful um, a little bit less work to get in there he's flying in a bunch of grub Maybe a couple beers for the deck. Who knows? A few things. He's flying it in. So I have to give a huge thanks, thank you to All Train Bear Hunts. If you are looking to get up north to go for a fishing trip, maybe bear hunt or moose hunt, check All Train Bear Hunts out on the old interweb. That's atbh.ca. Or you can email them atbh at mymts.net. And, uh, yeah, if, with those restrictions, if you can't travel as much as you'd like to maybe this summer or this fall, um, that's a good option. Northern Manitoba is always a beautiful place to go to catch fish or go for a hunt. So it's thanks good. to those guys, but that's where I'll be going. It's good to, it's good to know friends that, uh, have planes and, you know, get those key essentials <laughs> in camp. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Corey, Corey's been at the game a while too, eh, Sheldon? Like he's been an outfitter and uh, act, like almost a, a staple of Northern living up there for a long time. Yeah, like he grew up he grew up in Northern Manitoba and Thompson there. He's been running uh, all-train bear hunts for, you know, I, I would, this is a guess, but probably close to 20 to 25 years maybe. Um, but he before he did that, he was a, a guide for a, another outfit before he went on on, on his own. Um, but yeah, he's been doing some really cool stuff. Um, he's got a lot of Manitoba records with not only black bear, but with some big moose in the in the northern part of the province. And he's also been hosting like other like t- TV shows and stuff like that. Like Canada in the Rough just did one. Um, they just I think they launched it this this year a bear hunt and a moose hunt episode. So check out Canada in the Rough. You might be able to check out some local content. Cool, man. That's great. Good luck on the trip. I, ho- I hope you slay the walleye. Because if, if you're going where I think you're going, I love the walleye fishing there. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is I, I am super pumped, and thank you for the for the good luck. But I'm kind of a little bit nervous, too, because I'm going to be trying to do some uh, YouTube video. Or not YouTube video, but trying to film some content to do my own. Um, not my own, but some video for panoramic so it's something i'm not very comfortable with so i'll try it out and i got a few ideas lined up so hopefully i can come up with something where chase can put edit it together and make a sweet production for us but we'll see what happens with our chief editor and see what happens with me with very little knowledge to uh doing videography just keep her pg man and and uh we'll be all good out there <laughs> well you don't have to keep your pg do you <laughs> i might be screwed right off the bat <laughs> oh that's good god chase what do you got going on i saw you got out fishing with the kids a couple times yeah yeah fishing adventuring um you know i got uh um planning on getting out and doing a bit of foraging for some mushrooms here pretty soon uh probably next week i'm thinking i'm gonna gonna go find see see what i can find little stutter there um also uh you know, we've been trying to plan a bit of a summer camping backcountry trip um, with our uh, Citizen Canvas tent there. And I was kind of doing some some looking on the iHunter app there and uh, trying to find a spot to access some public land along like the Cinnaboyne River somewhere. So um, that that's, a, that's an easy walk down to the river for us to get some fishing in too. So... That's been super handy, and I think I actually dialed in a spot that I'm I'm going to go check out. So I know. Yeah. Sorry, Chase, about him, but that was super cool today. You, uh, we were talking about getting a camp spot, um, you know, like finding different camp spots along the Assiniboine River, and you actually sent me a text saying, "Hey, check." I sent you something on iHunter, and I went on there. Super easy. I went into like my messages. There was actually a pin, a pin that you sent me, which basically showed you like this is like a good spot or whatever, right? Not only that, which is really cool, and um, I clicked on it, whatever, blah, 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 but I actually have the landowner's map for that area, so it right away showed me it was, uh, you know, it was public lands, actually, but it kind of showed you who was uh, in and around that area mm-hmm. in case, you know, in case I knew someone, but yeah, that's super cool. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so if you guys aren't familiar with iHunter, they, they do have a couple different versions. They have the, the first version, which I believe I think is free right now, their their initial version, their base version which uh just comes with their satellite maps and and that sort of thing and it shows the ghas and all that and then uh, if you want to step it up and get a public land subscription it uh, shows most of the public lands i think 
all the public lands in Manitoba. Um, like that'll cover your WMAs, your parks, your uh, Manitoba Habitat Heritage uh, land, and all kinds of stuff. And um, you can get, get into that for a very reasonable price. But if you're looking for 30% off that, head to web.ihunterapp.com and type in the promo code Panoram Panoramic30 and uh, that'll get you 30% off. And above that, they have the uh, landowner map subscriptions too coming out. So pretty much the entire province is now um, mapped out and put into an overlay for all of iHunter stuff. And it's just going to be an awesome tool for for uh, any sort of hunting, scouting, whatever you want to do. And actually, I want to add one more thing in here before, uh, before we get off this topic. But um, one thing that I noticed that's fairly new on there that that's going to help me out a lot is the uh they actually have the sites of like the uh uh like the brainworm testing facilities and drop-off points and the tb stuff on the western side of the province so we do a bit of hunting on that western side of the province and you know i'm always there's a list there in the in the hunting guide of where all these sites are but now you can actually go on the iHunter app and click on these and you know you can find the closest one to you to drop your head off or your your trachea or whatever else you need to drop off there that's awesome for the collection sites yeah and then i did notice that but like let's not underplay how big this uh private landowner kind of subscription is for manitoba like to have all those landowner maps digitized and in your hand like i, th I feel like that's going to be a, a game changer in so many ways for for those of us who have to either seek permission or trying to stay on the move when we hunt mm -hmm. big time the, the one thing i am going to mention about that is like uh we did a post on facebook and then there's people kind of you know giving their opinions which is fine the one the one dude was saying like oh i think this is you know i can't remember how he worded it but basically saying like oh though well, this is great but what happens if I'm on still on the wrong person's property and I get in shit? Like, who's going to be held responsible then? But I think it's, like, common sense to, like, still verify where you're at. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. this is a tool to help you be where you're at. So, like, I mean, I love the I love the fact that you can find out wh what landowner owns what. But at the same time, like, man, sometimes in some spots, especially in, in south southwestern Manitoba, you know, some land gets changed over in hands. Not only... Uh, because like say deaths in the family but selling off farms or whatever else right so you still got to do your due diligence and figure out where you're at and then i just think it's just funny because and then there's another dude that was saying like he's like oh yeah they'll just be they'll just help the poachers out and i'm like why the fuck would it ever help the poachers out usually they just fucking shoot anything anywhere anyways <laughs> like I, I, I just didn't get that comment i've I seen uh one fellow commenting that he was concerned that that his over, hunting spot would get overrun with with people and uh you know, I kind of, I kind of thought in my mind, it's like, yeah, you know what, this might give people um, some insight to uh, maybe some public lands that they might not know were there before, um, which is good. And I could see the 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 downside for this fellow who might have like ex a very secluded area that you know has been producing for him. But um, two things on that: it's inevitable that this was coming down the pipe. Whether it was Mark Stenroos putting it out or whoever Joe Blow the next guy was, you know, 
And uh, I, I'm yeah. thankful that that we got Mark doing it because like the customer service backed by this app is just unbelievable. Anytime I need anything from him, um, is a simple message and he's right on the blower back to me very quick. And I want to say that like if we can take that 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 thought of like okay maybe there's some areas that are are you know might get some more action on them let's take that and like let's invest in other areas and whether that's time or or your voice or whatever to increase um habitat and increase wildlife populations across the across the province you know what i mean i think that's that's a super good idea like and yeah, I would agree with that 100%. Because I think there's a lot of people out there too that that hunt, let's say, in a in a certain area and don't even know about um, a public land piece, right? And so, so yeah, kind of, you know, in in some ways, it might suck. You might get a couple more guys on that on that piece of property uh, in the future or whatever. But at the same time, it just gets more people involved to trying to protect our public lands. Like even with, I know the one thing that's coming down the pipe is these campground things. And there's a lot of people in this province like, yeah, who cares? I don't camp, but you know, do you go hiking on trails or do you, you know what I mean? Like there's, you might not be able to just, just camp, but you could, you could just like kind of band together with a bunch of other groups and, and come up with a good outcome at the end. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, I, I just love using that iHunter app to just, uh, to get a general bearing on everything. And it'll, it'll be nice. They, they obviously haven't come up with an app to ask a landowner for permission yet either, which is the second part of the equation. So I, I wouldn't worry about your hunting ground being overrun yet because they still obviously have to get permission from that landowner too, right? So uh, yeah. maybe when, I just want to second uh, Chase there too about um, the customer service. The one thing that I, I do want to point out for me is I was looking to get certain areas uh, in southwestern Manitoba for my app and I had a few, few questions and stuff like that. And I sent an email, I think it was within 24 hours or maybe, maybe two days, but I wouldn't even say it was two days. I had a response and I had everything set up perfectly for what I wanted. So yeah, big, uh, big thumbs up to Mark and and whoever else is working over there at iHunter because they're, they're fucking killing it. Awesome, man. And speaking of killing it, Chase, you, I feel like you rang in the summer with your like first barbecue here you, you killed it with some ribs and uh some chicken wings and man i just i'm still thinking back to that meal because uh the food was just fantastic oh man that that totally had me reminiscent of like uh you know um the old creek days when we we lived there and we used to get together all the time and uh have a smoker fired up and whether it was chicken in there deer ribs or whatever but um we're lucky enough that we could we could get together this past weekend and uh man fired that pit barrel up and once again it did not disappoint um the the really cool thing i like about it about one of the accessories we have is that hinged grate in it right so i was actually able to fit four racks of ribs in there plus like two-thirds of a grill thing of chicken wings cooking in there at the same time whereas like on other grills that are similar charcoal grills you know you'd have to do your ribs and then do your chicken wings separately so i feel like that's a huge advantage for a grill like that you know so definitely it's kind of it's so interesting it's kind of like a two-in-one but i almost want to call it a three-in-one because it's like almost like your backyard air freshener as well like makes everything (laughs) smell good on your deck 
Oh, but if you man. want to get into uh, Pit Barrel Barbecue, you should go to pitbarrelcooker.com. And when you go to that website, you can check out all their accessories. They got a whole bunch of different accessories. They can go with the two barrels. They got a normal size Pit Barrel and then a Pit Barrel Junior, which is a little bit smaller. I'm running the Pit Barrel Junior. And uh, as Chase was saying, he did a bunch of uh, ribs and chicken wings. Unfortunately for the Pit Barrel Junior, it doesn't have that hinge rack. But I have done eight racks of ribs on the Pitbull Jr. So you can do just, just about as much food, I think, as the as the big one. Um, but pip, if you go to pitbarrelcooker.com, you can go onto their map, and if you're in Canada, you can find out where they're selling them locally so you can get over and buy one. If you're in the States, there's free shipping. And the last thing I'll say about Pitbull Cookers is that they're very inexpensive and very inexpensive to use. So if you're looking to upgrade your smoking game or your barbecue game this summer, I would definitely at least check it out if you go to buy one, uh, let us know we sent you. Thanks a lot to Pipperell Cookers for everything they've done for us. Yeah, and I'll be thinking about that meal for a long time to come. So, uh, but without reminiscing anymore, we got just wait, Derek. Just wait, Justin. I got one more question for you. We can cut Whoa, what that. What do you got? What do you got? I got one more question. Remember like a few months ago, maybe like six months ago, and you guys were talking about like cooking and stuff. We did th- the three things for us, and I haven't asked you for a while, but like what's on the Pipperell or what's on the cooker, what's on tap, and what's on the jukebox. I haven't talked to you for months, it seems like. So yeah, yeah. Tell, tell me what's going on in your world. Are we doing those? We're doing those? Okay. Let's You're doing here. them right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I recently on the cooker, I just did up some pork chops last night, and uh, they turned out not bad. Low and slow is the key to the game there with pork, I find. Um, what is on the tap? I just, I've been liking the Lake of the Woods peach ale that they've come out with. Really a smooth drinking summer beer. And, is it like uh, a seltzer? Did no, it's a, the, it's a it's beer. A, I haven't oh. seen the seltzer yet, no. I heard they had a seltzer and it's freaking dynamite, I heard. But they have a peach ale? Yeah, the or peach something. ale. So, if yeah, it's super great. And if you haven't tried it out, um, I... It comes with a vote of confidence from me. Let's just say that much. And yeah. And then what's on the turntable? Um, I've been listening to a little bit of Paul Cawthon. So he's, uh, you know, a Southern country art- artist there. He's got a deep sound. And uh, if, if you kind of like that, uh, really like. Um, how like Coulter I, Wall? Yeah. He's got a little bit more swing to him than Coulter. But uh, Coulter's oh, yeah. a little bit more like I find to be kind of like uh, out on the range kind of sound. And Paul's got a little bit more gravitas to him for sure. So gravitas, is that a word? Is that like a little <laughs> bit more, is that a little bit more city than on the range? <laughs> it's got a little bit more like resonance to him. Like he's got it. He's got a little uh, molasses almost we'll say. Okay. That's fair. Chase, do you got anything for us? That's thick. Um, what do I got on the, on the grill and the tap and on the, Turntable, turntable. I'll go with. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of Ryan Bingham. I'm, I'm sure I said it before that I, uh, I'm a big fan of his. But uh, I got a. I'm trying to strum a couple of his tunes, and I'm not a very good guitar player, so I have to listen to them and play them a lot to to get get a hang of it. Um, really enjoy his music. Uh, on the tap, man. Not much, actually. I just kind of uh, slid back into a bit of a diet here, so I'm I'm taking a mild hiatus from from uh, any sort of uh, weedy beverages. But what about uh, Friday night? 
Well, Friday night, I might have to cheat day. get a cheat day in. <laughs> um, but if I were to uh, choose a beverage for Friday night, what would it be? Probably, uh, oh man, that's a good question. I haven't really thought about this. I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to do probably uh, just some some sort of uh, crafty beers, you know, something summery. Those peach ones are great. They're also very dangerous. And then on the cooker, obviously I did some ribs and wings this this uh, past weekend, but I've been uh, I've been mastering the French fry again. I don't know if you know this, but I used to be a master fry cook at uh, Half Moon, and after displaying my skills and uh, and uh, very elaborately, you know, they quickly moved me into the hamburger chefing game, where I excelled there also. But um, if anyone wants to know the secret to a good French fry, you got to start with the right potato. Usually, like, uh, like um, I'm, I'm on some russets right now. They're doing okay. Uh, Yukon Golds are good. Uh, don't use red potatoes. They're too, like, kind of sugary, mushy, not starchy enough. And you got to get the double fry in there. So what you do is you get that fryer smoking hot. You dunk them in there for five minutes, take them out, let them cool down for 10 and then you dunk them back in there when they're super hot, and it just it makes the best French fries. So um, that's a trick. Talk about a lockboard story. Yep. I thought I thought I had a lockboard story. I was talking about my backpack today. Uh, what's that? You guys want to know my three things? Well, <laughs> I'll tell you. Um, I've been actually cracking a few cold Corona, Corona out of the bottle without lime. I don't know. I'm not a lime guy, but I, uh, I yeah, I totally like Coronas and on the old grill i've been trying to do so i go to obermeyer's usually every week and then pick up some meat from them and they have really good steaks they're a really good butcher here in brandon and uh yeah i've been trying to perfect the steak sandwich with that relish i've done that a few times in the last few weeks so i've been doing that and getting a nice like fresh bread see the trick to a fresh bread is <laughs> just kidding case <laughs> and then my last thing uh what's on the turntable is uh eric church came out with a couple new record or not records what the fuck are they called a couple Al- new albums albums Sing- singles singles albums and uh yeah he, i think he's going on tour october 2nd or 30 he's coming through in winnipeg so i'm thinking about maybe getting tickets for that but yeah eric church has been on my uh my turntable it's a good one nice man take us so, away tristan yeah we'll welcome derek kroger to the podcast there again the regional fisheries manager here in manitoba uh, and I think we kept Eric a little longer than we had anticipated just because the conversation was that engaging. And I didn't want to give up on the fact that we had like this almost it's, it felt like a secret access point to information. So tune in peel your ears. Uh, I hope you enjoy the, the episode here and we will see you on the other side of this one. And joining us on today's episode, uh, we have Derek Croker from uh, the Manitoba government on with us today to chat about some some bigger stuff that's coming down the pipe here in Manitoba mainly and uh, uh, first and foremost obviously is the uh, Manitoba recreational angling strategy that's that's been proposed here and uh, Derek thanks for coming on yeah thanks for having me this is a great opportunity yeah, we're 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 super excited to get you get you on today and uh, dive a little bit deeper into things here and and maybe ask some of the questions that I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are also asking themselves. So, um, but before we get into it, 
we're not going to dodge out of our typical uh, intro of our guests. So with, uh, with hopes to learn a little bit more about uh, Derek Croker here, we want to ask you the five burning questions. All right. Now, answer these at will. Sometimes they take half an hour. Sometimes they don't. <laughs> <laughs> not sure if you're much of a music man, but if you had one last concert to go to and uh, you could pick somebody alive or dead, who would you go see? One last concert. Oh my goodness. I like all kinds of music, right? From sort of classic country to, uh, to rock, to uh, folk music. Blue, I like bluegrass a lot too. So that's really tough. Um, maybe alive or dead, mostly alive. Like when I was younger, Led Zeppelin was pretty, pretty big. And so, you know, if I could sort of relive the, the, the seventies for a minute and go back and do a Zeppelin concert, maybe I might do that. But, uh, the older Derek would probably pick something a bit softer and more countryish. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. That's a fair answer. Um, you got one last meal. What are you going to have on your plate and what are you going to wash it down with? Oh boy. One last meal. Oh boy. This is tough. I hope my mom's not listening. Um, cause I might not pick some of her food. I'm not sure. Boy. <clears throat> hmm. I like food a lot. Um, I'm actually going to go with a venison backstrap on nice. the barbecue. That's kind of where I'm at right now. I, I, I really enjoy hunting for white-tailed deer, and I, I absolutely love cooking it myself. Uh, and so um, the backstrap on the barbecue, roll it around really hot and sear it and make sure it's still good and red on the inside. And if I can have that with uh, a decent glass of red wine, I'm going to be pretty happy. Well done, well done. I like that answer too. Um, How do you season the backstrap? That's a that's a very important question. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, so I'm I'm pretty steady with that one. I don't I don't go off the off off my own recipe too much. So it's uh, I bring it up to room temperature out of the fridge. Make sure the silver skin's all off of it. Um, I'm going to give it a, just a little bit of uh, powdered garlic on it and maybe some coarse salt. Sometimes if my wife insists, there's going to be some Montreal steak spice on it, but often not. Uh, and then it just sits like that for half an hour on the counter before it goes on to that hot, hot barbecue. So yeah, I don't put a lot of seasoning on it. I really enjoy the taste of venison. Um, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm definitely someone who's looking for a younger deer when I'm, when I'm harvesting a deer to eat. So um, yeah, in my mind's eye, it doesn't need much seasoning because it's just so great by itself. <laughs> Yeah, lots lots goes into the prep work for uh, getting a good tasty hunk of deer meat on the table. There, I feel like if yeah, you if you, sure. if you don't handle that stuff properly, that's or cook it properly, that's when you get the people that that complain yep. about it and say it's no good. I, yeah, and I insist on doing it all myself, right from the harvest part right through the butchering, everything. Uh, I insist on doing it myself just so I know that I've touched that that piece of meat everywhere along the way that there's no, there's no, nothing could have gone wrong in between. And, and you know, there's a lot of pride when you harvest a deer yourself and you, and you butcher it and then you cook it and then you serve it to someone who's maybe either never had venison or maybe he's had a bad experience with venison. You serve it and they go, that's what it's like. Oh mm-hmm. my goodness. I had no idea. And this is like the pride just, just flows through the kitchen at that point. And uh, yeah, I think I've actually ter- even converted a few non-hunters into people who'd even consider hunting deer just because they enjoyed that meal so much. Amazing. Are you are you a vac sealer kind of guy, or do you do the butcher paper for uh, oh. wrapping up? Yeah, butcher paper, but with cellophane underneath first. Right. Cellophane and then butcher paper. Yeah. 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 Uh, usually, we, usually we eat it so fast it doesn't uh, it doesn't have time to uh, sit in the freezer too long. <laughs> doesn't linger right on. No. Um, good questions though so far. I like it. Yeah. Good <laughs> answers. You're definitely. Uh, Right on track with us here. 
kind of shifting back towards the, uh, you know what, we'll, we'll stay on the hunt topic for a second since we, we just got off a good venison story there. But if you had uh, one last hunt to go on, what would you go chase? Uh, pheasants in Alberta. Is that right? Yeah. I spent uh, quite a few years in southern Alberta, lived right close to where there's a really great pheasant population. And at the time, I had a lab which uh, I taught to point. I got the, a lab to point pheasants. And so some of my best memories ever are hunting uh, in southern Alberta with the mountains in the background, snow-capped mountains, and my black lab pointing out a big rooster and it taken off. And yeah, it's just unbelievable. And I like all kinds of hunting, right, from moose to grouse to waterfowl and everything in between. But there's something about a big rooster exploding from your feet that your dog has uh, pointed and then uh, taking that. And of course, they taste great too. There's just... Uh, just to me, that's just such a huge rush uh, that you, we can't do here too. So part of that maybe is just longing for something I used to have that I can't have here perhaps. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's my last hunt right there. Definitely. That's cool. It's funny because, uh, you know, the the older I get here and the more uh, new stuff that I'm experiencing in the outdoor world, like we've kind of, we're very new to uh, turkey hunting and mm-hmm. that's now become something that I really enjoy doing and fly fishing is kind of something that I'm getting into more and more now. And, uh, we've haven't really been hard into the upland game. It's just kind of been a byproduct of other hunts, like a waterfowl hunt. And we go on a afternoon hike for chickens or, you know, you come across one while you're deer hunting. But now Tristan has a, has an Irish setter pup. And, uh, I'm interested to see how, how things will change with that that whole story and and if uh you know just i don't know just how different it's going to be going forward with that with that uh with the addition of the dog and spending more time in the field chasing birds so that's pretty cool he's only yeah. pointed songbirds so far to clarify <laughs> that's right i i think hunting uh birds with the dog changes everything um you're going to be more focused on what the dog's doing than what kind of you're doing and you're going to get more satisfaction out of watching the dog work than actually bagging birds like it's just it's such a rewarding thing same thing when the retrievers working uh in a duck marsh just watching that dog work and pick up you know uh, what could have been maybe a cripple or a lost bird and your dog goes back into the cattails and gets it there's just nothing better than that so yeah that's congrats on, on the dog because it, it does change how you hunt and um it's really rewarding there's a lot of work in dog training obviously but it's also part of the whole process right and so it's so much rewarding when everything pays off after you've invested in your dog for sure. So yeah, good luck with that and enjoy the puppy stage because it doesn't last long, but uh, yeah, it's fun. Good. Right on, right on. Um, Okay, now shifting back to the fishing side a little bit here. What's your favorite fish to catch or go fishing for? It's changed over the times. Uh, Boy, when I was younger, it was all about the pike and then it was walleye for a while and then it was bass. Uh, Now it's probably crappie. I have a... I love fishing for black crappie. Uh, we're so lucky here in Manitoba to have this sort of brand new population that's exploding in the eastern part of the province where I can, you know, within less than an hour's drive, I can get into some, probably some of the best crappie fishing in, in North America right now. We have, we're so blessed with so many different lakes that now have great poppy, cro- crappie populations. So right now it's crappie, um, but that's going to change again, guaranteed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm, we're lucky. We have so many different good species to fish for uh, in Manitoba. And um, yeah, I mean, there's going to be a time when I'm going to want to chase lake trout because I keep on seeing all these great pictures of lake trout from northwestern Manitoba. And I want to go do that too. Um, it's just 
kind of a long drive to make it mm-hmm. for a weekend. So, yeah, definitely. And, uh, last question here, if we have to take you out of the province, uh, what would you want to target for a fish species? <laughs> okay. In Kanu. <laughs> I want to go do in Kanu. That is like the most underrated species. They're like Arctic tarpon. Uh, that that's one cool fish that I've never laid eyes on. And yeah, let's go do that right now. I'm up for that. That's uh, the Inkanu are is like a, a giant whitefish. Is that correct? Kind of, yeah. It's like a giant whitefish. Uh, they get somewhere in the 20 pound range. Uh, they're quite voracious, apparently. They're hard to sort of pattern, from what I understand. Uh, of course, I don't know much about them, but yeah. And uh, I think some of them are, are sea run too. So they're yeah they they're they're almost mystical in my mind. I know they exist. They're out there. You see these great pictures, but it's seems like no one ever talks about targeting them necessarily as a as a uh, recreational species i know they're definitely part of the food chain uh, that people you know enjoy eating them in you know in, in that part of the world so um there's got to be great ways to catch them they're they're big and it looks like they should be able to fight really hard so yeah one of our former guests on the the podcast there um jeff he was from he was from northwest territories and he was talking about the indigenous guardianship programs up there and the Ikanu were actually one of the main features of that program. And not only were they, it was a, like a centerpiece to their their harvesting up there, but it was also one of the main research vessels as well for what they were looking at uh, from that program. So that was the first time I've heard of that fish, but uh, it, it's kind of cool to hear it mentioned the second time on the podcast and uh, make that connection. That's, right. that's, that's the same thing I was going to say too. <laughs> you know, I've never heard of them before before we talked to Jeff and now here we are again hearing about him again so that's that's super neat yeah I mean there's lots of other fish I'd love to target and never had a chance to do any of the Pacific salmon things yet and I certainly want to do that so there's lots of great fish in Canada that uh, I'd like to get onto grayling as well but uh, those Inconu just they're they there's we know so little about them and they get big and so that's two high points right there Mm -hmm. (laughs) no kidding well, um, as you alluded to earlier here, Derek, um, you know, Manitoba is home to some just phenomenal fisheries, not, and we're talking like comparative to North America here, you know, we have some really, really, uh, amazing trophy class fish in this province. And, uh, so the the big news in the fishing industry right now is the new Manitoba Recreational Angling Strategy that was just released. Why don't you give us a bit of a high level overview of of what this strategy includes and and what the goals are right now with it? Sure. Yeah. No, I'm I'm super excited about this. I mean, this these are a suite of proposed changes. I think we have to remind everybody these are this is a proposal. So there's definitely some room for change here. And we've come to the public fairly early in the process because we, we do want feedback. It's very important for the public to tell us what they think about this. But the, the overall premise of the, uh, of the proposal is, is maybe twofold. One is to provide more opportunities to anglers, but on the other hand, also to ensure that we are uh, managing our fisheries sustainably and, and to offer added protection where it's needed. So those might sound almost like two different two different pillars or two different two different ways of thinking, but we're definitely thinking there are areas where we can offer greater opportunity. But as we get into the package, you'll see that there are things that we are quite concerned about, and we're we want to you know further enhance the protection of those fisheries. So it's it's twofold for sure. 
So there's sort of four main pillars and two of them are maybe the biggest pieces, but part of it is modernizing some of our angling license types. Uh, the biggest thing that people probably want to talk about are some of the seasons and retention and size limits that we're proposing. And then there's some, some aspect of live bait harvest in use, and there's a few minor changes to ice fishing, but those are fairly minor. So it's mostly that sort of seasons, uh, retention limits, size limits that people want to talk about. So um, yeah, it's it's all, uh, from my perspective, really exciting to propose this. And it's interesting to listen to people talk about it with some great passion. You know, some people get really passionate about this, which is great. I mean, the worst thing possible would be, would be if we put this proposal out and we didn't hear anything. Mm -hmm. That would be terrible. Uh, but we are hearing a lot of people and, you know, some people don't like it. Uh, some people love it. And that's was expected. Uh, whenever you make change, you are going to be faced with a whole variety of perspectives. So we certainly want to hear from people and there are places they can do that. We can talk about Engage MB, the website where this has been posted, where people can actually respond on there. But we're also open just as fisheries managers and, and staff to listen if people want to phone us or email us or whatever. We're, we're open to all the avenues of hearing feedback from the public. Right, right, for sure. It's, uh, it's almost like, uh, to me, it, it feels like a bit of a breath of fresh air because I, I, I have this um, thought or this this experience that, you know, especially more so on, the, on like the hunting side of things in Manitoba where, um, you know, populations kind of dwindle and then it almost seems like we're too late to, uh, to bring them back in a timely fashion and, and you kind of get behind the eight ball there. And this, this really seems like you guys are trying to get ahead of everything and really maintain what we have here already and, and keep that going forward for future generations. So that's, that's kind of something that, that I'm excited about. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely part of it. Uh, we see certain pressures occurring in the fishery, and and yeah, we're trying to maybe anticipate a little bit about what might happen. But um, you know, it is it is tough, and of course, change is difficult. And uh, in a in a regulatory agency for like what I work for, it's hard to make changes. Uh, just the internal uh, challenges, and then the external challenges of making change is tough. So getting to this point is actually really exciting for me and I'm happy to hear you see it as a, as a, something positive. That's, that's great news. And uh, yeah, you know, again, th for, for my career in the province so far, I've been with the province for almost 15 years. This is certainly the biggest uh, suite of packet, you know, changes that we've been proposing. So it's exciting just to go through this process and um, yeah, I can't wait to hear what, what people have to say about it. So. I was going to, I was going to echo that in some ways and say like, it, as long as I've been an angler, this seems like the, the most significant package of change that I've, I've ever come across um, in Manitoba. And can you maybe Derek, take us behind the curtain a little and look at what has gone into this change here so that it's come to the forefront now that we're proposing um, such a large package, not, not necessarily the content of it, but like, how did we get here and uh, where are these changes going to land us kind of scenario or where, where are we hoping to land with some of these changes? Right. No, that's, that's good. So uh, you can imagine that we get, you know, we get feedback from people constantly about our, our angling regulations and people have suggestions to us, whether we should do this or we shouldn't do that. So we have a lot of uh, people talking to us, whether they're casual anglers or even people in the, in, in the industry or uh, lodges or outfitters, we have people, you know, asking us if we could consider doing this or consider doing that. And, and over time, we, we do actually listen and we're compiling those. Um, there's a, we're not a very big group in fisheries branch, but uh, most of us are really keen on communications and, and listening. 
So we, we're taking those ideas and at some point we, we had to sort of put them together. Uh, as you know, quite often in the fishing guide, uh, we might have proposed changes in there from one year to the next, but they're they're incremental, they're minor. They might be changing one lake from six walleye to four or you know, doing what I call minor incremental changes. But when we have heard uh, of people suggesting to us things like uh, changing, going away from the general spring closure and doing something different like Ontario does with the species specific closure, uh, that's not just something you can throw in as a potential change in the angling guide and have sort of the right kind of feedback. That's That's something quite substantially different for Manitobans. You need to have more time for people to to maybe absorb that and see what it, what that would be, and at the same time, you know, if we're going to um, propose doing that, like getting away from the general spring closure, well, that might mean that there might be some unintended consequences and pressures too. So at the same time, we need to add some extra protection at the other end to allow that, right? So that's why this came as one package rather than sort of a series of annual changes one year after the other. They kind of had to go together. And underneath all of that too is that is changing some of the regulations and they're they're quite intertwined. Our Manitoba regulations are intertwined with the Federal Fisheries Act. And we can change our own regulations fairly easily, but when it comes to changing things in the Federal Fisheries Act, um, we have to actually apply to that. They only actually look at those every two years usually. So we needed a lot of lead time uh, to change anything in, in the Federal Fisheries Act that would uh, apply to these changes. So we needed quite a bit of lead time to not only get our own, I guess, ideas together into a package, and that of course had to be vetted by our senior uh, executive and, and, and go up the chain to make sure it was acceptable. We, we obviously aren't going to propose something that you know, our own elected officials aren't going to you know, support. So we had to get a package, at least a, a, a framework of a package ready, and that's why this is a proposal. And so once that happens, then we could go to the public, but we, we had to sort of really get our act together and anticipate, okay, which regulations will we have to change if any of these changes do go forward? What communication tactics will we need to use? How are we going to uh, have the right um, assets, even like lawyers and stuff to help us write new regulations? There's so much stuff that we had to think about that it took a long time to get it all ready and finally get it out the door. So yeah, I mean, I was super excited when the announcement finally came out because it really was like four or five years of work for quite a few of us to get this to this stage has taken quite a long time. Um, and it's still not perfect, obviously. There's, you know, we're getting comments back, people saying, oh, you should have thought of this and you could have done that. And yeah, that's true. Like there's, there's certain other things we could have maybe put in there, but we kind of needed to get this framework first so that we could get it ready for public comment. So yeah. I, I'm not sure if I've answered your question, maybe the right way, the wrong way, but it's uh, that's how I see sort of how this uh, how this came to be to this point. That's amazing. Um, man, that's a lot of work to put in there. And w one question that always comes to my mind when we're talking about regulation changes and, and everything, um, you know, uh, I'm going to reference back to the hunting side of things, you know, where you're, we seem to be playing catch up a lot of times. And, and I, I've kind of assumed that some of that has to do with like the, the speed that things can get done uh, in relationship to, uh, an occurrence, say like a drop in populations or, or what have you. So generally when, when you guys are looking at, at changes, how long does it, would it take you normally to, uh, to make like a, a regulation change on limits or, or something like that, uh, as opposed the, to like the, the forethought of what this is, uh, proposing. 
So there's certain things we can change relatively quickly. Uh, some of the decisions we can make are actually delegated down to the director level, where the director of the Wildlife and Fisheries and, and Resource Enforcement Branch can, can make a decision and do that. Some things need to be changed in in a different regulation where we might need some some lawyers to help us create new uh, new language in there. So that would take longer because we have to actually have legal advice in it. Those things can usually be done within a year, um, and that's sort of the types of changes you might see that we do from time to time. It's some of these other things that are tougher, in particular the licensing part. That part is actually tied to the Federal Fisheries Act. And one of the proposals that we're doing in here, of course, we have gone to e-licensing, but unfortunately right now you have to still print and sign your license, right? Which is, let's face it, that's pretty annoying for a lot of people. If you don't want a printer anymore, this is pretty annoying. And other jurisdictions have gotten around us, but by law, we can't get around it because the Federal Fisheries Act says you have to print it and you have to sign it. So we have to wait until we can open up the Federal Fisheries Act, which we have to ask sort of our federal counterparts saying, hey, we'd like to do this. Um, and they come back and say, okay, we'll, we'll consider it, but you have to consult with the public first to see if they want to do it, right? So it's lockstep with our consultation process, and then we have to go to them, which they say they could take up to 18 months. So we were, you know, we have to rely on them also to do their part too. But you're right, there are some things we can do uh, much more quickly that we can do on an annual basis. Um, and uh, what you see in front of you is definitely a combination of the bigger, harder parts, but also some of the easier parts to do as well. So I know I, it sounds like that that I'm ragging on on the government quite a bit here on with uh, with the speed of things that that uh, happened in the past. But I, I do understand that a lot of it, you know, you guys are swamped a lot of the times, and uh, like all the referencing that I've been doing to the the wildlife side of things, and uh, and uh, time is obviously a virtue and. Um, so is money and resources for all these things you do. So I just wanted to clarify that. <laughs> not that yeah, and, I don't want to. And that's not a problem. Like, you know, one, one thing working for government is that uh, you do have to develop a, a bit of a thick skin because, you know, people often when they talk about government, they may not be thinking that there's an actual person or people sort of behind the scenes that are working. It just it's easy. I, I grew up on the farm. You know, it's kind of easy to complain about government that, that what they do and don't do isn't right. Uh, but when you work internally to it, uh, there's just so many moving parts and there's so many, um, you know, there's so much, uh, you know, you don't want to make a mistake as government either. When you do make a mistake, uh, if you definitely hear about it from the public. So we, we do need to be probably more cautious than other groups have to be just because uh, people are counting on us not to make big mistakes. So we are fairly cautious that way. And I, I say sort of government as, as a general, we're, we're fairly cautious when it comes to changes and decision-making and that's, fairly normal for most governments across anywhere I've, I've either worked or lived. It's it's actually quite normal. So it can be even frustrating a little bit too for us internally, how slow sometimes it is. But on the other hand, we also recognize you need a lot of checks and balances to make sure we don't accidentally do the wrong thing. That's, that's definitely uh, become very apparent in my career that uh, there's a lot of people that need to make sure we're doing the right thing internally before it can go external. Mm -hmm. Right on. Um, so let's dive a little bit deeper into the the, uh, the angling strategy here and um, we, we've talked a little bit about it already but um, some of the closures that are coming up you know some now uh, for a lot of fish species you guys have opened it right up so you can fish right through the spawn of, of these species and it's it's interesting because um, again the further the older I get the more I learn whereas like you know catfish correct me if i'm wrong they do spawn during the summer months and we've already been fishing them right through the spawn for i don't know how long that would have been but 
but uh, explain sh- some of the closures that you've that you've opened up or uh, put are proposing to put in for for walleye. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so you're exactly right. I mean, there's actually quite a few species that don't spawn in the spring that we've been, I guess, inadvertently protecting through that general spring closure. Uh, a lot of things that people love to fish for, like smallmouth bass and black crappie, you know, they don't they don't spawn in the spring either. So there's quite a few, of course, uh, whitefish, lake trout. Um, when you start adding it up, there's probably more fish that spawn in the summer, fall, or even burbot spawn in the winter, right? So when you add it up, there's uh, there's definitely the core group of, of species that spawn in the spring. So walleye, sauger, pike, perch, like those are the big ones. Of course, the sucker species as well. But uh, it's well, we looked at closing it by species instead of that, again, that general closure. We looked specifically at the ones that we have information on uh, that are either at risk because people want to eat them, like they're just more more harvested, or they might be at risk, uh, like for lake sturgeon, where, you know, in a lot of parts of the province, the sturgeon still aren't doing that well, and we're waiting, you know, trying to encourage their recovery. So we've uh, we've closed by species, three different species. Well, we, we do lump, lump walleye and sauger together. So we, we're closing walleye sauger, we're closing lake trout, and we're proposing to close lake sturgeon. Those, those three species we're proposing to close during your spawn time. So it's just those three. And we'll be able to start with walleye sauger. It is, you know, it is for sure the number one species that people want to harvest, right? It's not necessarily that people all want to fish for walleye, but people definitely do want to harvest walleye. And we're, we're you know, very well aware of that in terms of all the research we do and, and the studies and assessments we do. We're usually focusing on the walleye population to see how it's doing. That's sort of our number one species that we're looking for in our in our test nets and so forth to see how they're doing. So, you know, it's it, it kind of goes without saying, if you look across North America, uh, wherever there's walleye, there is a walleye season, right? There's very few places where walleye are open year round. Um, most jurisdictions have a closed time during their spawn, and, and we'd like to mimic the same the same type of thing that, that uh, the other jurisdictions are doing. So we looked at uh, you know how, what we have for information in terms of where walleye are spawning and what their what their timing is, and uh, so that's what you see for the walleye closure. For the lake trout one, uh, lake trout, we are just at the cusp of getting some new information. We've actually uh, partnered with the University of Winnipeg and have uh, two. Uh, grad students who are doing some research on lake trout. They just started here recently. They're working in, in southeastern Manitoba and they'll be working in northwest Manitoba. So they have a two-year project going on where uh, they're studying uh, two different aspects of lake trout. One is just their overall population status. We don't have a lot of good information on, on lake trout. We are very concerned about them in the southeast. Uh, a lot of our lake trout lakes where people have caught them, um, either people aren't catching as many as they used to or um, in some places where we stock them, it just doesn't seem like we're, we're getting them returned back in the creel, like people just aren't catching them. So we have pretty strong concerns about lake trout in the southeast. So we're proposing, uh, you know, that people cannot target them during their spawning time, just, just to help them. You know, at this time, even though we don't know un- maybe enough about them, we still are using sort of a precautionary principle. We're, we're worried and we feel that we should offer them protection now before we have maybe the full amount of, of data just uh, because we feel it's it's necessary, at least in the southeast. In the northern division, uh, we haven't actually set sort of a close time for lake trout. We recognize in the north it's a bit different. The populations, you know, often are in very, very large lakes. Uh, and typically there, what's happened is that there's been areas closed, right? There'll be certain reefs in certain areas of lakes that are closed to spawning. So we want to uh, consult with a local um 
you know, outfitters, guides, lodges, other stakeholders, people who fish in the north. We want to we want to consult with them. So we haven't even in our proposal talked about what kind of dates we might see. It it might be that the you know we we stick with uh, with area closures there with lake closures like parts of lakes and not go to a, a a date like we've done in the southeast. But that'll all kind of wash out when we consult with those people, and then secondarily when we get the information when the when the projects are completed in the northwest, we're going to get a much better sense of the overall lake trout populations, and just to see how vulnerable they really are during spawning time. Um, it used to be that you know. Not a lot of people necessarily target them during their spawn, but more recently there's been some YouTube videos and, and a lot more people are, are really interested in targeting trophy sized lake trout, like the really big uh-huh. ones, right? Uh, where in the past people maybe would catch one or two for food, uh, but the whole idea of trophy lake trout fishing has really taken off in, in northwestern Manitoba, which is great, right? From a tourism standpoint, it's fantastic. But what is what are the effects of catching a 40 inch lake trout while it's trying to spawn? Like, is that a good idea or not? Um, most of us kind of would say, well, maybe that's not such a good idea, uh, you know, if we're trying to protect the species long-term in, in the, in the long run. So that's kind of the stuff we want to hear from anglers. Again, we want to hear opinions. We want to hear what people think. Um, we don't have something set necessarily on Lake Trout in the North in terms of how this is going to be accomplished, but we definitely recognize that, you know, through different handling techniques, uh, that they are fairly, fairly vulnerable at certain times of the year. Uh, if, especially midsummer, you bring up a lake trout from deep water, if the surface water temperature is really hot, uh, they don't do very well in release, right? So uh, we need more research on that. We need to know what we might have for catch and release mortality. So one of the, one of the students who's working on the project will be working on catch and release mortality specifically for lake trout in the Northwest to help us understand that. Like if we really need to be worried about that, you know, um, do we need to close these, uh, cl- have a, a more uh, widespread closure or more specific? Uh, all that's going to help lead into the final decision-making process. And then finally, Lake Sturgeon is the other species where we're proposing a species closure for their spawning time. So unfortunately, Lake, Lake Sturgeon actually were not protected under the old general spring closure. They spawned after. They typically spawn in that third week of May, third, even sometimes the fourth. Um, so in certain parts of the province, our Lake Sturgeon population is actually recovering quite nicely, but other parts not. Um, so we felt it wise or prudent to propose a a species closure during their spawn. Um, You know, the federal government is uh, contemplating putting them on the species at risk uh, list or species at risk act. So uh, even federally, there's a recognition that generally the lake sturgeon population isn't doing well, very well. Um, Our own research tells us there are pockets where it is doing well. So on the Winnipeg River, where we have had a conservation closure, where you can't actually target them at all right now, there's pockets in the river that are doing extremely well um but it's not widespread across the province so we're uh, it's kind of tough when you have that uh, that kind of challenge where you have lots of fish in one spot and very few in another to create a regulation that will help protect the overall population and the way that the uh, the federal government looks at it they look at it from a more broad scale um, recovery they don't necessarily say well the Winnipeg River is doing well, so you're free to go everywhere else. It uh-huh. doesn't work that way. They, they look at much more broad scale geographically. So we feel that uh, it is prudent to protect those fish during their spawn pretty much wherever they are. And so that's why the proposal is there for, for Lake Sturgeon. A couple of follow-up questions there, Derek. On uh, I'll ask one about the trout and then one, one about the Lake Sturgeon. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll kick off with the lake sturgeon because I feel like it's the easier of the question now. Sure. How it seems like that that lake sturgeon spawn would be a very delicate or sensitive spawn, given that they you know they don't spawn frequently. They they spawn uh, you know very few numbers, and they they don't they're one of the few species that don't spawn eggs, from my understanding. Is is that kind of the case with the lake sturgeon in Manitoba here that uh, they they really have a sensitive spawn, or is that something that's maybe I'm just blowing out well, of proportion? I'm not sure if it's sensitive. Like they they do have eggs. So that would be what caviar is from. Like caviar oh, is geez. from sturgeon, right? So <laughs> so they do have eggs. They are black eggs. They're really cool eggs. Actually, they're quite different than other fish eggs. You you know right away when you see sturgeon eggs. Uh, so. You know what we've what we've realized through all the research, and you know, Manitoba has actually been probably one of the epicenters of lake sturgeon research in the last ten years. And you know, I've got some colleagues at North South Consultants that have done uh, incredible work. Uh, Craig McDougall, in particular, I'd like to single out, who has published most of the really excellent research that's happened in Manitoba over the last decade. But there's others as well, and we have uh, universities that are studying them. We know so much more about lake sturgeon than we did uh, 10, 15 years ago. But some of the interesting things we have found out is that the female sturgeon, you know, it takes them a long time to get to maturity, sometimes between 20 and 25 years before they spawn for the first time. Once they finally are able to spawn, they only often spawn once every four or five years, where the males usually spawn every year. Like, yeah, the guys are always ready, right? But the females, <laughs> the females, uh, you know, they're only ready to spawn once every four or five years. So then when you think about all the mature fish in the population, you go, wait a minute, if only 20% of those are going to spawn every year, let's just say in a stretch of river, you've got, you know, a hundred really nice big female sturgeon, but in any given year, you've only got 20 that might spawn. So now you start thinking about, well, should you really be interrupting their spawn if there's only 20? Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's not a lot, right? And so every sturgeon has a lot of eggs. That's the one cool thing. So if they are allowed to spawn, there's a lot of eggs and, and there's always enough you know, males to make sure they're fertilized. So that's typically not the problem, but we certainly, you know, are cognizant of the fact that um, you, you don't have a lot of actual females on the spawning grounds in any one given year. So in that case, they are kind of a bit more sensitive to disturbance of any kind. Um, the interesting thing is, is that, uh, you know, typically in the research we've seen is that most of the eggs are fertilized. Most of them, you know, hatch actually at a fairly normal rate, but often what happens with sturgeon is you are you miss your classes. It's something happens between that fry stage and surviving the first year. So what we're seeing in our research throughout the, the you know, in both the Winnipeg River and the Saskatchewan River is that you might have one really good year class out of five or six. And the other year classes, there's hardly any sturgeon coming at all. But then once every five years, you've got lots of juvenile sturgeon coming up. And at first, it seemed like that was really an anomaly. But now as we're looking at it further, it seems like a lot of lake sturgeon do that in other parts of North America as well. It might be sort of a a normal strategy where there are very few offspring, except for once, you know, two two or three times per decade, you have that. That makes them really difficult to manage. As a fisheries manager, it's kind of really frustrating, right? Because um, there's just not consistent recruitment, right? You you know, it'd be like if you owned a ranch and your, your, your cows only calved you know, once every five years, like what would you do in the meantime? You'd, you'd be broke, right? It doesn't work. So it's difficult to manage them uh, in that way. The good news is they're fairly resilient. Like you can catch them and release them. Uh, they're fairly resilient to catch and release. We've got some great data from a uh, biologist we just hired recently, Eric Mullen, who did his grad work on catch and release um, mortality of sturgeon. So they're, they're pretty tough that way, which is good news, right? That's good. Uh, but we still feel through all of that, um, that it's just best not to have people specifically target them on their spawning grounds, especially if they kind of know where they spawn. 
it's just sort of best if they could just uh, not target them during that time. That makes sense. And I, I, I'm guessing I won't get my honorary doctorate in ethology anytime <laughs> soon through the any universities <laughs> after that egg comment. Um, and I'm almost a little uh, apprehensive to launch my second question, but we're in the podcast business. So here it goes. Um, regarding the the lake trout um, in, in the southern part of the province here, I, I've, I've got a bit of a theory I'd like to run past you. And that is like, I just read an article that is stating that due to climate change, our lakes are losing anywhere from two to 5% of their oxygen per decade. If that's, if that sounds correct. Um, and my mind immediately went to trout because we know that they need highly oxygenated water to survive. I'm, I'm thinking like the fact that you've identified this South, obviously it's a more accessible fishery, but I'm wondering if that, you know, maybe if those lake temps are starting to creep up, if that could also be a cause of concern for that species in that area. It's definitely something that's on our radar. I read the same article. Uh, stud- those studies are done or led by Dr. Peter Levitt out of uh, University of Regina. And um, yeah, I mean, warmer water carries less oxygen, right? And that's, uh, you know, we we know that over time, our lakes have been warming. And for lake trout in particular, what that means is that um, as the surface water warms, it forces them deeper into the lake, right? But there's also a, a bottom layer that they don't really want to go past either. So it actually just squeezes them down to a medium layer of the lake that they can use. Um, some of our lakes where, you know, we have lake trout, we're in the south where we only have maybe 40 foot of depth. Now we're talking about really squeezing them down into a very, very small area where they might be able to live during the summer. And uh, that might be the reason why they're not doing well. That's definitely plausible. We don't have that as a smoking gun by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Lake trout are in this, you know, are, um, you know, they don't grow very quickly. Um, They don't uh, mature very quickly either. So it's not like a species that you can harvest at a high rate anywhere. Um, So we don't necessarily know if it's harvest or if it's just this habitat change is sort of squeezing them out. There could be some other relationships happening. Some of our, Lake Trout Lake now have smallmouth bass they didn't have before, some have crappie they didn't have before. Uh, some of the walleye populations are actually increasing in these lakes that, you know, they are always some walleye, but they didn't do very well because the habitat favored trout. Now, as it warms, it's favoring these other species. And in any given lake, there's always, you know, a battle for food is how I call it, basically talk about it. You know, they're all fighting for resources. And if the water warms slightly, it favors the warm water species and it doesn't favor the lake trout, which are a cold water species. So, you know, over time, uh, those are all kind of pressures on that species that interact in, in ways we probably don't even understand because all three of those things are happening at the same time. Um, and, you know, I'll be fully admit every, every time we learn something about a, a system or a species, there's 10 more things I realize I don't know, right? Like that's exactly how science works is that every time you learn something, you realize how ignorant you are on, on a whole bunch of other things. And this is a case too, where, you know, we really can't say there's a smoking gun here, but we're, but we're concerned. We're very concerned about, you know, all those factors, you know, coming together to create a problem for lake trout. And we, we dearly want to hang on to our lake trout populations in the Southeast. Um, and then what does that mean for the Northwest? Are they next or, or not, or are they more resilient, right? Those are, different systems there so yeah that that's uh amazing information (laughs) and that that uh climate change is definitely i think bringing on more concern than than everybody thinks in the in the wildlife world in general um getting uh kind of back on track here for a minute towards uh the uh 
angling strategy and um you know so, some of the other, other things that that you guys are putting in place now is uh the limits for uh for catch for recreational anglers like the the walleye is obviously mm-hmm. be, being uh limited to four now province-wide and you're, you're getting away from the the lake specific uh regulations tell us about that a little bit yeah, and that's one thing we did not maybe stress maybe enough in this document. We we made mention a little bit under possession limits on one of the pages where we said, you know, there will be lake-specific regulations will still apply. We probably should have been a lot more clear about that. So that's maybe one of the main critiques here is that uh, a lot of people say, well, wait a minute, this is going to apply across the province, and, you know, this doesn't really work very well to the other lakes. So, and we weren't, obviously we didn't make that clear enough that there will still be one-off lakes. So, mm. you know, Crow Duck Lake is still going to be two, right? Uh, if in the stock trout world, the tiger trout lake, uh, t- twin lake will still be catch and release only. So we're not actually, we're not actually blanking this right across all of our lakes, but this will bring in a lot more consistency to, let's say a lot of our walleye lakes, we've already had dropped to four, right? And so what this does, this actually streamlines all those ones that we've already kind of taken that precautionary step on walleye in particular and it actually brings it across the province much more consistently particularly for for walleye soccer is the biggest one so a lot of the one-off lakes that were for walleye they now just become the general regulation but for you know a lot of our stock trout waters there's going to be lots of one-off lakes there's going to be some for uh for for uh, stock trout and and others too so uh those will still exist and there's still going to be you know some specific regulations under each angling division for sure that's a good question. That's definitely one piece where we did not communicate that properly, and we recognize that, and we're definitely you know hearing about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when, and but that's okay. It, it means that people read it. Again, had no one picked up on that, and uh, and everything, you know, we would have heard you know nothing. I'd have been quite disappointed. Um, I actually, I'm, I'm fine with people kind of you know giving us a bit of heck for not being more clear on that. So it means you guys are listening. That's good. I was perusing the comments and uh, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're aware of some of the general feedback already, but the, regarding the walleye regulations or the, the, the proposed changes to them, the, there does seem to be some alarm around the, 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 the transition to a, a four, uh, four fish slot limit. And uh, can you say more about what the intent there is and is it going to be like that forever or is this kind of a transition period and what are we hoping the walleye fishery will obviously look like in 10 or 15 years here. What's the goal? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I would say maintain. Uh, we've actually got pretty strong walleye populations in a lot of our lakes, especially our major fisheries. They're, they're actually quite, they're quite strong right now, but we do recognize that there's becoming more and more pressure on them. Uh, in particular, this last, these last years with COVID, I have seen more people, you know, uh, participate in angling that I've ever seen before, which is fantastic, right? I mean, I, I'm in a position where part of my job is promoting fisheries and part of my job is protecting fisheries. It almost, <laughs> it's almost like I'm working against myself if all within one day. So it's great to see people out there, but uh, we recognize that, um, you know, six is probably a little high on some of our lakes, especially our, our, our white shell lakes where we have low productivity six is probably going to be too much. So four would be where we're proposing to land on and then stick with four for quite some time. Our, our intent is not to change things drastically. If these things come in again, these are all proposals. So, you know, we're nothing's guaranteed here in terms of what's being done, but yeah, we're, we're, we're definitely proposing four for most of our, our, our fisheries for sure. The one piece that also I noticed people are have picked up on is that 
the walleye sauger season would the closure would be one week later than our than our general closures right now and i think a lot of people are quite concerned about that and we looked at that really hard too some of the things that we noticed is that when we have late springs and this spring of course on you know doesn't demonstrate it at all this is a very early spring and, and fish were kind of done spawning a little early but we do have have had quite a few springs where it's been a late a late spring and the spawn is pushed back a bit and um we've actually taken quite a bit of um I don't know, complaints about, uh, you know, having people starting the angling season when the walleye are still spawning, especially in the Red River. Uh, we have some really uh, recent information from a tagging study done by Doug Watkinson out of the DFO, out of the federal fisheries, where they've tagged a lot of walleye uh, and other fish species in, in the Red River and Lake Winnipeg. We now know that a lot of those fish actually are spawning in the Red River main stem uh, way more than we ever thought, especially below Lockport and down past Sugar Island and all of those riprap areas. Um, there's a lot of walleye spawning there and it was kind of shocking to us. We didn't think that that, that many fish actually used the red to spawn. So we looked at um, some of the complaints that we had taken over the years about, you know, people catching spawning walleye uh, in when we open up the fishing season. So we decided to extend that by one week, which actually when, then would align it with the same uh, time closure as it would be in uh, northern Manitoba, but also Ontario. The Ontario walleye season actually closes on the same, or sorry, opens on the same date that we're proposing. So we were thinking it would kind of bring all the walleye closures together under sort of one time frame that might be more acceptable to people. But we also understand, it's, you know, it, it does impact people by delaying their, their targeting walleye for one week. So we definitely recognize that for some people it'll be an imposition and they won't like it very much for sure. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, we've been sort of told by anglers also to make sure we protect walleye better we've had a lot of calls for stronger protections of walleye so we're we're hearing it from both ends and i always kind of make the joke if you put three anglers in a room uh you're going to get five different opinions on what you should do <laughs> right so and that's good like we have anglers from one of the spectrum to the other who want different things and i think that's important and that's good to have that diversity but it also means that, you know, when you set out a proposal like this, you're not going to please everybody. There's always going to be some people who think that it's not going to work for them in particular. And we understand that, um, you know, we're not, we're not blind to that fact that we're, that we're going to make some people upset. And then, so you've got kind of the, I don't want to call it infighting, but difference of opinions within the, within the recreational fishing industry in Manitoba here, kind of the, the walleye conservation plan, but this isn't occurring in a vacuum either. The The walleye species, as you've identified, one of Manitoba's most coveted species is also like prized by commercial anglers as well mm -hmm. as like First Nation harvesters. And there's a, there's a ton of politics that are kind of uh, not just politics, but different opinions and uh, people's livelihoods all interlaced into to how these, these fish, this one fish is managed in Manitoba. How is this plan kind of navigating that that waterway in in a metaphorical sense here to, to try to arrive at some sort of consensus on how we all move forward to collectively, obviously, right? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, I mean, my job and all of our jobs is not just to manage recreational fishing; it's to it's to manage this, the the populations for everyone to benefit, and that that's everyone, right? It means our commercial industry. It means our our First Nations peoples who who use this for food. Uh, it, it would be terrible if we mismanaged the walleye population so that a First Nation would lose a major portion of its food source. That would be not good either. So we're definitely looking at overall long-term benefit to as many people as possible and to those three those three segments of, of the users as well. 
um, you know, the fact that these fish are food for people is not lost on me. The food is very important. We talked about, you know, that whole process of, of harvesting a deer and, and the process you go through that. I think people see fish the same way. Like when they harvest a fish and they clean that fish themselves and they, they eat it with their family, it's important. It's, it's, it's cultural. It's, for some people, it's spiritual. So I take it very seriously that, you know, this proposal is meant to help with sustainability across all three of those harvest pathways. And, uh, and there's definitely, you know, we have to look at how we share that fish and how we allocate all those fish to those different groups. Uh, there's lots of talk about, you know, the commercial fishery and, and yes, it harvests more, more walleye than the recreational fishery does, but for some communities, that's the major income for that entire community. So when we're talking about allocation and sharing, how do you necessarily take away that income from a community, which then might lose, I don't know, it's grocery store or it's gas station, or it's school if people start moving away because there's not enough money anymore. Like it's, it is a big deal that you have to think about, you know, other aspects of it. This is, you know, a recreational proposal, but you're right. These are all intertwined and, and we don't work in a vacuum with the other people that, that are very interested in these fish. Um, there's also just the, the, the tourism market we haven't even talked about either. That's also super interested in, and they have sort of a different perspective on what we should be doing with walleye and protecting the very largest ones too. And, so we, we see that piece too. Um, we can also bring it down to money too. Like there's, there's you know, the economies that go into this and, and how much money is in this industry and that one. Uh, we look at all those things. And at the end of the day, like again, as biologists and managers, we, we put together a package and then it needs to be vetted by a lot of people um, that look at all of these things too, right? So we're not just, you know, one or two people looking at it. There's quite a few people that have to bring this all together. But it's tough, like, you know, and that's why it's not easy. Like people say, why don't you just do this, right? And you can't because you're you're going to inadvertently damage someone else on the other side of that of that proposal. Yeah, so it almost seems like, and um, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, like I I like science. I believe in science. I think science has, you know, brought our understanding of the world so far along. That being said, these decisions can't just be scientific decisions solely. They can't just be strictly economic decisions. They have to kind of be a blend of all these. Mm -hmm. um, different values that kind of come into play here. I don't envy your job because in, in, <laughs> in many ways, like, I mean, I'm sure you think it's the greatest job in the world. You get to uh, hang out with fish all day and uh, maybe uh, grease some wheels, but because um, most folks we talk to in the podcast love their job dearly, but um, I can see where the tensions would rise and maybe um, the, the, the final product of this, this proposal, I'm guessing it was, very different from when you know you kind of probably took your first steps on the on the journey here to reform some of the 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 policies around this i would imagine yeah for sure there's there's always uh changes that go along with these things and we do almost always start with just the straight biology we just start with the straight science and say well here's the things if we could just go with the straight numbers this is what it would look like but knowing that this doesn't quite work in this scenario, we will modify it like this. So we do start with the numbers. We always try to start that way. And I think that way is particular for the biologists that I, uh, that I supervise and the, the other bios that I work with, they can feel like they've done their job. Their job is to bring the science high up and, and bring it forward, right? From there, there are managers and other people that have to touch it, uh, you know, in terms of how it, re how it uh, you know, interacts with economy and, and the sociology. And at the end of the day, I mean, we have elected officials to, uh, to make the final decisions, right? And that's, um, that's the way that democracy works when, when changes are made. So um, there's so many different layers into it. And um, 
that's a good thing, right? Again, that's all part of the checks and balances. And if it was just science, it would probably look a little different for sure. But uh, management requires you to look at the economy and, and society in, 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 in step with science. So Definitely some, some big parts at play here and uh, lots of little stuff as well that kind of have to mesh together to, to make, make everything work. One of, one of the things that was, that was part of this strategy also, and, uh, you know, we, we talked about, uh, the anglers talked about commercial fishermen and we talked about uh, a little bit about, uh, the tourism dollars and, and, um, outfitting. Um, but one, one part that, uh, is going to affect people too within the strategy is the, uh, the live bait, um, getting banning live bait in Manitoba, right? So it's, it's, I feel like that that's going to be a hot topic too, because, I mean, Lake Winnipeg, you go out there and, I mean, half the time it's live bait, live bait, live bait, live bait, right? So tell us a little bit about that. It's all, it's all from what I understand too, it's all part of protecting the, or, or our water bodies essentially as a whole. Yeah. yeah. Can, I, can I tag on to that just a, a bit here and, and add that like out of that past conversation that we just had, I saw that... Um, that complex value system emerge into the discussion around live bait now where we're talking about local gas stations who maybe rely on some of that revenue or that draw from live bait. So what was that process like uh, as Chase was saying and uh, like, where's that headed? Yeah, that's, that's a really tough one too. And of course, live bait has been one of the probably major discussion points on top of all this, the walleye piece as well. But uh, certainly the, the live bait, um, you know, the proposal here to ban these the harvest and use of live bait fish and uh, and leeches has been probably one of the hot topic uh, issues. So what we look here is 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 at risk, right? Uh, we know that annually our angling industry is worth about six hundred million dollars. Uh, that's the, that's what what's worth to Manitoba. And so then we look at the different risk factors that might negatively impact that. And one of them, of course, is aquatic invasive species. Uh, we know that, you know, if we are, uh, if we have certain species come in, it's going to negatively affect that $600 million industry. We don't want to do that. So how do we try to protect that, in, that, that really large industry? Well, you try to limit as, as many risks as you can. One of them is live bait fish in particular. You know, of course, uh, people have seen pictures of the the jumping carp, the silver carp, and big-headed carp. We just call it generally Asian carp that are in the states. Um, they can have a, a really big negative impact on on fisheries. Uh, we certainly don't want that those species here. It would be they would do very well in Lake Winnipeg. Their biology would would fit very nicely with Lake Winnipeg, and they could uh, be the a very dominant species there. If that were to happen, we don't know exactly what would happen to our walleye fishery, like in terms of the commercial subsistence, recreational trophy. We don't know what happened, but it wouldn't be good. Like it would not benefit walleye and therefore it would not benefit uh, you know, our, our major industry. So we look at the risk of bringing in uh, an, an invasive species like an Asian carp, or we look at some of the other things too. Now, part of the reason that we're targeting both live bait fish as leeches is people move water with those organisms, right? Where when they're taking those live bait fish, they're moving water from one place to the other. And to be honest, our live bait harvesters do a great job. We already have a lot of regulations on them. They have to have they have to have new water when they when they bring those bait fish to their shop. They actually have to put them in what we call potable water or filtered water. So there are no diseases and so forth. They're they're checking to make sure that there's no invasive species in their in their in their fish. But when those fish leave their store, 
there's there's very little control as to what the anglers are going to do with them, right? And so I've heard people say, well, yeah, I, I you know, I just keep my live minnows in, in an aquarium and I can keep them alive all summer. And they're kind of happy <laughs> to tell me, like, I'm, I'm pretty good at keeping live minnows going, you know? I'm like, oh, but like when you go to lake to lake, are you moving water? Well, yeah, I just give them a little bit of fresh water wherever I go. And, you know, it's the things you can't see in the water. It's what's going to hurt us. There's there's diseases like uh, VHS, right? That That can be very bad to fish. There's uh, the villagers or the, the larvae of zebra mussels are microscopic. So you could be moving zebra mussels with moving those fish, those bags of water around uh, and spiny water flea as well. So there's there's these things you can't see that are in the water that people might accidentally move from one lake to the other. And then it could just drastically change how that next lake is going to is going to um, ha- its ecosystem could be changed by that. And it's unfortunate, but uh, obviously we're not the first ones. There's other jurisdictions, uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Quebec have already banned live bait fish. There's uh, five or six states in the U.S. that have already banned it as well. Uh, There's many others that have gone to very drastic measures of things like you can only use live bait in the waters in which they were caught, right? So if you want to use live bait in Lake Winnipeg, you could only just catch your own, basically, or have someone catch them in, in Lake Winnipeg and use them. Well, in Manitoba, that's not really the way it works. Our live bait typically comes from areas where there are no uh, large body fish. They are in what people would call sloughs or swamps or very small water bodies is where our live bait fish come from. So that regulation really wouldn't work very well in Manitoba, where, you know, the bulk of our live bait fish are being used either on Lake Winnipeg or Oak Lake. Um, that we have uh, every five years, the federal government does a survey of all recreational anglers across across the country. And the last time that this question was asked was in 2010. But in 2010, the question was asked, uh, what proportion of people use live bait fish? And it was uh, 17% of Manitobans used live bait fish once per year. Most of them, it was not their first bait choice. It was actually their second or maybe even third choice of bait. And it was about 15% used leeches. So there's a, a, a fair, well, fairly small population of Manitobans that consistently use live bait fish. But that being said, there's a few places where it's very prevalent. Like I mentioned Oak Lake, a lot of people in Oak Lake like to use live bait fish. Uh, In winter on Lake Winnipeg, there are a certain group of people that like to use live bait fish. And there are some days where it definitely does work. Uh, I myself very rarely use it because I can't be bothered trying to keep those things alive when it's minus Mm -hmm. 20 outside. So I'm pretty happy with with a tub of of, of shiners and even happier if I don't have to use any bait at all. If I can just use spoons and uh, and, uh, lipless cranks, I'm happy with that just to to do that. So, you know, again, here and here we have this sort of push-pull where we recognize that there's a live bait industry and there are people who do this for a living, right? And so we're asking them to uh, to set that side of their business aside and lose that part of their revenue to protect the rest of our, of our industry, our recreational angling. And to find that balance is tough. And it's, it's not fun giving people bad news. Uh, we don't like it. We recognize that this is a big deal, not just maybe for income for some people, but it's also who they, they identify as. I'm a bait harvester. I spend my time doing this at certain times of the year. I'm also a trapper. I also do these things. I'm a guide. Like a, those people tend to have that kind of lifestyle where they're outside all the time doing different things that bring them income. And maybe the live bait is 25% of their income over the year. I don't know. But it's still a big part of what they do and who they are. So we recognize it. It's not easy. Um, this province has actually tried or had considered banning live bait many times in the past, and it uh, it, it, it hasn't uh, hasn't ever gone forward this far. This is the first time we've actually been able to bring it to the public and say, what do you think, right? And so we're getting uh, a, a variety of, of responses so far. So people are very upset with us. Some people say, yeah, we should have done this 10 years ago. We're, we're getting everything from either end of the spectrum again, right? So 
it's understandable. We don't take it lightly. Um, I've had live bait fishers in my in my office, and we talk about these types of things. I know who they are. They know who I am. It's not an easy conversation. I don't I don't relish what's in here about this. Um, but on the other hand, I have to look at the overall industry and uh, and what it might mean if we were to accidentally get some of these invasive species that could ha- cause irreparable harm to our, our water bodies. I mean, once zebra mussels are in, for instance, like you can't get rid of them. There's, mm-hmm. you, there's no going back. Yeah, no, no, nobody's uh, coming to uh, to target zebra mussels or Asian carp for uh, a fishing industry. So, and uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm definitely guilty of topping up the old minnow bucket water, especially on a slow day of fishing when you're looking for something to do. Yeah, and it's you know we recognize that people are going to do that. I mean, I don't fish with live bait very often. I do sometimes with leeches, and leeches you can keep a long you know in the fridge a long, long time. Uh, but they get kind of slimy. So yeah, you, you know, when you're fishing, you just dunk a bit of fresh water in there. You don't really think about it. And then, you know, now, of course, that I'm trained in it, I, I just realize how risky that is and, and what I might have just done by doing that in terms of diseases that I could have just introduced accidentally. And it's it's kind of a, like a no-win situation. It's not, there's no win in this for sure. Uh, so I feel, you know, we f- don't feel happy to necessarily bring this up, but we feel it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we've definitely had a, uh a long conversation there about a lot of regulation changes and a lot about uh limits and licensing and all that has to get backed by you know if all this is coming forward we got to have the team out there making sure you know everyone is abiding by all this and and uh, Mm -hmm. recently there's been a a merger uh merging of uh or of departments almost where enforcement is now part of um, ARD, which is where you guys work under, correct? That's right. Yeah. So we're in the same department. In fact, we're even in the same branch. We're now wildlife fisheries and resource enforcement branch. So we're, we're even closer and uh, it's, it's, it's kind of exciting for me. Like we, we do, you know, have relationships with officers, but quite often, like you said, they were in a different department and, and maybe they get sort of slightly different marching orders. Uh, now we have at least at some level, some of the same reporting lines. And so if there's a priority set by government, um, it's set to me and the officers at the same time. And, uh, you know, for the officers that I deal with, we're kind of excited about this for the most part, because we recognize that we like to work together. Like it's, it's natural for fisheries and wildlife managers to work with enforcement because we recognize if you don't have enforcement, you don't have management, you need to have enforcement. Otherwise all these regulations that we're proposing are kind of meaningless. So we've seen already even in this last little while, some, some excellent collaborative work with uh, our officers and some of the enforcement, either whether it be on recreational fisheries or commercial fisheries, there's already been some excellent work done and some great stuff that's happened. It's so exciting to see it. Um, you know, enforcement tells us sometimes when there's a management issue, and sometimes we see enforcement issues. And now we can just basically, you know, across the hall or, or through one of our senior managers say, hey, like, you know, can we maybe address this in these next two weeks where we see this problem developing and we can be way more responsive than we ever have before by having the same bosses essentially. So mm-hmm. it's super exciting. And to be honest with this proposed changes, like we need them more than ever, because of course people are going to be, you know, if again, if this goes through people switching from that general closure to the species specific closure, there's going to be a great requirement for education going forward. And enforcement officers are often the, at the front lines of educating people as to why we're doing certain things. So as people are out there, hopefully, you know, enjoying bass fishing and crappie fishing and lake trout fishing and, and, and uh, you know, channel catfish fishing in early May when they never could before, 
they're going to be encountering some walleye accidentally, right? Because you, the way you fish those species, you're going to probably accidentally catch one. But if there's enforcement officers out there, we, they can sort of talk about, okay, well, this is kind of where the walleye spawns. If you want to avoid them, you could catch those other species over here, right? Or if someone asks, why can't I keep a walleye? Oh, well, they're spawning right now. And this is where they spawn, right? There's that whole opportunity for education. Most of our officers, they would much rather tell people the rationale behind a law than throwing the book at someone. Like they're, they're, they're good at it, right? And so those relationships that they can now build with these people who are hopefully going to be enjoying the resource at different times than they normally have, it, uh, it's only going to strengthen the relationship, I think, between the officers and the public. And then hopefully the public over time will just elevate their overall knowledge of fishing and fisheries. Like that's one goal I really want here too. I want people to know when do smallmouth bass spawn. I want them to know that. I want them to know that burbot spawn under ice in February or March. I want them to know that, right? And this kind of helps people to think about, well, maybe I could fish for the species where I hadn't before. Like that's part of this plan is to have people fish for different things, travel a bit more across the province, understand fish and fishing even better than they did before. To me, that's an overall goal here that I think everyone benefits when everyone understands fishing better. Mm-hmm. Derek, with the merger of the departments, have you been assigned a sidearm yet? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I've not. That's a great question. Um, huh. You know, um, it's one of those things where I, I've always kind of grown up with uh, with quite a few firearms, but never, never a sidearm. And it's one of those things you always kind of wish you had maybe, but on the other hand, it's also nice to know that if I jump in my truck and go and like, stop in at the gas station or, you know, grab a burger, I didn't forget, oh, my, my handgun's on the front seat of my truck. <laughs> like there's a lot of responsibility that comes in with carrying that. And I think as much as sort of it sounds pretty cool to have that, um, there's a lot of times I'm glad I'm, I don't have to be responsible for for something that, uh, you know, is, is quite different than what most people are used to, but <laughs> good question. I, I thought you would have maybe had a little CSI deal going, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> I should have just pulled out the pearl handle right there and just said, yeah. oh yeah, I've, I've got two right now on me. But uh, no, yeah. no. No, no. Oh, that's good. And <laughs> so you got, you got, you're working more coordinated in a more coordinated fashion with in, uh, conservation enforcement, which is great. Um, but we, we kind of hinted at earlier on in the conversation here that these conservation conversations just don't occur in a vacuum politically, but they also occur. Um, we had talked before the the podcast here about, just the sheer size of the Lake Winnipeg watershed, for example, like these, these are also national, you, you discuss federal regulations, like these are national and even international um, discussions that we have to have. We look at um, the Red River it flows north, right out of the, the United States. So uh, there, there's must be some coordination here on this, this strategy from not just the province, but uh, our, our international and national partners, I'd imagine. Yeah, it so you know maybe there's not so much comment specifically on the fisheries management part of things. There's definitely a lot of collaboration with science. We had a decade-long uh, channel catfish study that happened in the Red River. We learned so much about channel cats from uh, researchers based out of University of Nebraska, but also University of Manitoba um, and Minnesota, North Dakota, were helping out along uh, at the same time. We were, learned so much about the movements of catfish, about where certain species, there are certain sizes of fish tend to congregate. So a lot of the science things we certainly collaborate on. When it comes to fisheries management, um, you know, it's not necessarily we ask North Dakota, say, hey, we'd like to do these things, because uh, they're kind of doing their their own thing, and they have different uh, different 
ideas. Like for instance, in the States, channel catfish are probably one of the number one consumed sport fishes. They, most people eat them. Where in Manitoba, we don't, right? So there are a lot of, lot of differences there in terms of how they harvest. But when it comes to the overall aquatic ecosystem and when it comes to water quality, there's definitely a lot more collaboration there. So there's the Red River Basin Commission that, uh, you know, has regular meetings with North Dakota, Minnesota, even South Dakota sits in on that one as well. And they talk about water quality concerns. Um, and that's, to be honest, really, really important because, you know, we are, I focus so much on the fisheries, but to be honest, if you don't have good water quality, uh, you don't have a fishery to start with, right? So it all starts with that water quality. And so the good thing is we do have, you know, people on our water science, uh, there's a water science branch that we have that that definitely do that. And they have also collaborations with people in Ontario on the Winnipeg River or uh, specifically about uh, water coming down the uh, the Saskatchewan River um, with both water quantity as well as quality because of course, SAS Power has a number of dams on, on their rivers too. And so there's coordination about, well, when are there dams opening and how much water's coming down the pipe to us? Um, and there's also the discussions about, well, what is your water quality? What are you doing on your landscape you know, in terms of your 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 cities and their their septic systems and the farms in your jurisdiction, what are you doing with your habitat so that our water, when it finally gets here, is in good quality, right? So, there's definitely organizations that look at trying to collaborate across those jurisdictional boundaries about just better stewardship of our watersheds in general, but it's tough, right? Um, it's hard because you have, you know, there might be different uh, political leanings on one province versus the other or across the line to the states. So they might not necessarily see eye to eye, to eye uh, politically. Uh, us as civil servants, we tend to be, uh, we stick around a little bit longer than some of the politicians maybe. So we do make, you know, longer term relationships that outlast some of the political uh, changes, but it, it can also be tough because sometimes those uh, bureaucrats on, let's say it's Saskatchewan, but you might get new marching orders to say, we need to have X amount of new arable land and uh, some of the riparian zones are going to come down because we just need to plant more, more crops. And if that's the marching orders, then that's their marching orders. It's pretty hard for someone in Manitoba to influence that. But there's also partnerships with things like uh, Ducks and Canada, which does a lot of work on riparian management and watershed management. So there are these national and international organizations that can be very good partners to help us in that bigger picture thinking so that people in Alberta know that the things that they do in their landscape actually make a difference for a lot of people all the way down, not just Manitoba, but all the way through Saskatchewan and, and Manitoba. So we do have those organizations that are probably even better at that communication than we are um, because they just have those uh, those staff in those different provinces and in some kind of states as well that can help with the, with the communication. Man, it's... it's my my mind is just blowing here about like just listen to you speak derek and 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 putting together all the pieces here and all the coordination and all of the 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 communication that that takes place in in your workplace uh beyond your your desk pretty much with with everyone across the country and internationally on all this stuff is just is just incredible it's probably part of the most rewarding things of what I do. You're like, you know, uh, Tristan was saying I, I handle fish a lot. Actually, I hardly ever get to get to work with fish. I'm generally working with people for the most part now. Uh, and but it's become very rewarding because again, if you don't communicate properly, uh, all the best science in the world doesn't get to where it needs to go. People need to not just hear the message, but they need to understand the message too. And you know, us as scientists don't always get that right. Even as managers, we don't always get the communication part right. 
but uh, we're trying to be better at that for sure. Um, hey, I'm doing podcasts now. I, if you would have asked me five years ago, can we do podcasts? We, we probably <laughs> couldn't, right? But now we can. Uh, what a great way to, to reach out to people who maybe don't get to talk to government people very often or, or just, you know, don't understand what we do. So, you know, my career is leaning more and more towards this idea of communication and we still don't get that part right either. Like we definitely miss out on some people that we probably should have communicated with, but we just didn't think of it because it wasn't, you know, part of what naturally governments have done in the past. So I'm, I'm really happy. We've been able to, um, you know, do these types of communications. We want to get even more involved in different social media type or platforms, but um, it's, kind of difficult. I mean, if you get trained as a biologist, there's a there's a very low chance that you're going to be, you know, the first person to also start the Twitter up or who, <laughs> you know, is going to is going to do something, uh, you know, tech based to get the communication. We, we kind of need new people with that skill set that still understand the fisheries because they're going to have to help communicate this. But we need that skill set that we I wasn't trained in. Right. I wasn't yeah. trained that way. But I recognize their value. I sure do. And we need them. And we need, we need to find a way that we can we can bring them into our fold. And even if we're not using them exclusively in fish, maybe the wildlife guys can use them too, or maybe the enforcement guys can use them too. We need those staff to help us get these messages out. And that way, at the very least, this type of proposal can be in the public eye. And again, that was the main thing here. We need people to, to look at this and comment. If no one commented on this, I'd be very leery about enacting anything, right? Because we just have no idea how it would be taken. Um, some of the things have surprised me. One of the things I thought for sure would happen is when we kind of dropped the overall possession limit or proposing it from six to four walleye, I thought I'd hear a lot of negative comments about going from six to four. And actually, it's been the opposite. I've heard people saying, you should have made the walleye even more restrictive, maybe not on the limit, but on the sizes. They were saying you should actually decrease that maximum size to maybe 60 centimeters or, or none over 55 at all. I was blown away that people are actually giving me heck for not you know, for not having this proposal be even more restrictive on walleye. I would have never thought about that when we first started making this package, you know, four or five years ago. I thought, well, we're going to hear from it from the guys who want to take home six walleye every day. <laughs> and and we didn't. Like, it, it, we didn't. So it just shows how even though when you think you maybe have seen all the perspectives, you, you don't get to see all of them, you know. And, and that's what this is all about is is having people tell me now, tell us what you think of these things. Yeah, you know, I I do think the discourse on conservation is evolving and will continue to evolve. I don't know if so both social media and the internet have been kind of a catalyst to that, but um, I remember a time when if you caught a twenty six inch walleye, the the standard operating procedure was to bonk that thing on the head and take it to the taxidermist as quickly as possible. Now I think on the internet you would get gassed that you people would be appalled that that you would uh kill the fish at large um so it does seem like there's a shift at least culturally as to how we treat trophy fish in manitoba yeah oh that's for sure uh even just overall catch and release again that uh that national survey it gets done every five years the the proportions of fish caught and retained are going down every year the proportion of fish caught and released is going up it's almost like in manitoba i think it was if I remember the numbers correctly, it was 93% of all fish caught are actually released. The, 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 the retention rate is, is, is getting lower and lower all the time. People want the experience more than they want necessarily to take home their limit of fish. And uh, I even just look at my parents as sort of the model for that too. It used to be too, when we were on the farm, we went fishing. We were out there for a bit of a meat hunt. We were out there to collect some food. Like that was a big part of why we went fishing. And now like my folks are out there and yeah, they'll keep, 
you know, enough for a fresh fish fry that night. And that's it. Like there's no more mm-hmm. fish going in the freezer at my parents' farm. It just doesn't happen anymore. They, they much rather just eat that one fish fry fresh and then not have to worry about packaging up all the fish at the end of the day and labeling them all and putting them in the freezer. So yeah, even for my own experience and my extended family, that's been happening. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just great to see that people's perspectives can change. Like that's really, um, that's a breath of fresh air for me as a manager to see that people's people do change over time in their perception, right? That that's a great thing that people aren't sort of stuck in only one way of thinking. That's amazing. Um, lots of exciting stuff on in the, uh, in the Manitoba fishing industry here this year. Um, one, one interesting thing or one, one amazing thing I think that, uh, that has also come into play here, uh, for Manitoba and fisheries in Manitoba is, uh, is a new, uh, fish stocking truck that has been purchased. <laughs> now right. I, I feel like when most people hear that, they just think, you know, there's a new government vehicle on the roads kind of thing. <laughs> and, and, uh, and it, it, they, they don't really make much sense of it but uh why don't you tell us a little bit about that and and the value that this truck actually brings is it an 05 sierra because let me tell you (laughs) the 05 sierra is a fantastic truck (laughs) uh yeah well this one's a bit newer a bit heavier duty and it's definitely built with special purpose um i I should have asked uh kevin dick is the is the fellow who is sort of the lead at the at the white shell hatchery for those who don't know the white shell hatchery is tucked way down in the southeast part of the province it's uh, at the outflow of west hawk lake and goes into caddy lake down the white shell river and it is right along the ontario border um one of the fun facts is that actually well over half of our stock trout go all the way to the western part of the province where in the prairie parkland we have these fantastic uh, trout fisheries so we're, we really, by necessity, have to move these fish a great, great distance. And I should have asked Kevin what the odometer said on our old stocking truck, because it has to be in the you know millions of kilometers, because that truck runs a lot. And uh, it was actually uh, breaking down pretty frequently. We're losing water pumps. We're losing uh, injectors. It's, uh, it was uh, a bit of a, um, uh, a gamble to take that thing across the province. And of course, in the back of that truck are live animals, right? So when it breaks down, it's not just a matter of, well, we'll just wait till tomorrow. No, like you need to get that truck up and moving so that those fish can be released where they're supposed to go. So the new stocking truck uh, is considerably larger. Of course, it's it's new, so hopefully we won't have any problems with breakdowns, but it, it can haul, I think the numbers are basically two and a half times the amount of fish that our old stocking truck can make, can, can take. So right there, we're looking at roughly half the number of actual trips that we have to be taken across Manitoba. So think about the savings in fuel. Think about the savings in staff time. Think about the savings on the person who's actually got to drive the trucks back. Like I've, I've ridden in that stocking truck. It's fun for about five minutes. Like this is the old one I'm talking about. It's fun for about five minutes. And then you realize it's loud and it's bumpy <laughs> and it's just not a, it's not a great place to be. And yet, you know, the staff from the hatchery are, are driving that thing a lot. Like, it, you know, in the spring and fall, usually three times a day, it's, that truck's going somewhere. So this is going to cut down the number of trips. It's going to be way better for the person driving. It's going to be quieter. It's going to be more comfortable to drive it to the seat. The seat is going to be better. I can guarantee you whatever seats in there will be better than the old one. So I'm happy for this, this, the staff that are using that truck. It'll make them more efficient and it's just going to make a better product for Manitobans too, because the fish will get there in better condition, right? So we can move those fish faster. They'll be in better condition when they're stocked. And that should just be good for our overall trout fishery across Manitoba for our stock trout waters. 
so yeah we're super excited to have that uh that new truck it's not up and running just yet so uh, it's been the tanks are on it. It's been built, but uh, they still have to do all the uh, the airlines or the oxygen lines to get it uh, to get it fully ready. But uh, yeah, they're anticipating it should be ready fairly soon, and I can't wait to see it roll down the road. To be quite honest, because it's uh, you know that older truck, uh, it was always a bit of a a gamble as to whether it was going to make it to its destination. <laughs> That's uh, I'm I'm sure the fisheries uh, the stocking people are just thrilled about this new new vehicle. Um, that but like the when when you talk about how the fact that that truck's going to have not only like on on the fisheries but like also going to bring bring value to the communities that these fisheries revolve around and yeah i i, I yeah, actually sure. seen a a number about a return rate on uh i think it was each fish that was stocked and it was a mind-blowing number do you, do you have any information on that or an estimate on what what that is I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I'll, I'll try to recall the best I can because it is quite amazing. So for every, and we had it actually broken down by different species and the tiger trout were, were very valuable, of course. Um, but it was upwards in the, in the neighborhood in the $30 range that every dollar we spend on our stock trout program brings in $30 to the community to where those fish are stocked. And that's just a, a rough number. I can't remember if it's 29 bucks or 28 mm-hmm. or if it was 32, but we're somewhere in that high twenties to low $30 range of investment to, you know, what, what the end payout would be to that community, which is, you know, absolutely amazing when you think about that. Um, our stock trout program is interesting. It, we have different user groups who want to use it, and we have different types of trout fisheries. Some are certainly what we call like a put and take, right? Somewhere the trout aren't going to grow very large, but people want to want to fish for something different, and they want to eat some trout. That's okay. Like we have, you know, our trout, uh, our hatcheries is producing enough trout we can do that. But then we also have those trophy trout fisheries where people are sometimes driving, you know, hundreds of kilometers. Sometimes they're coming from the Midwest U.S. or even from from the uh, from the Pacific Northwest U.S. coming to fish our stillwater stock trout fisheries because they cannot find places where they have the quality of trout that we have in such small geographic area, right? And you can get the different species all within some in some cases a 30-minute drive from each other and catch true trophy-sized fish. Um, it truly is amazing, and, and those uh, those uh, water bodies in the Prairie Parkland area are so nutrient-rich, they're so full of so many different food sources, those, those trout grow so quickly, and that's why this all works. If we stock those same trout here in eastern Manitoba and Shield Country, they just never can get that big. It's just not going to happen. There, there's not enough food for them to grow that big. So there's something very special about those lakes, and it's it's very important to the economies of those small towns then, because... When fishing is good, when those when those uh, lakes are producing the very largest fish, those motels are full, the restaurants are busy, the gas stations are being used, um, those campgrounds are full too. So it's very evident when things are going well that it's driving the economy of those small towns in western Manitoba. And in some of those cases, there's not a lot of other industry that's happening, right? So it can be, like I had mentioned earlier about the commercial fishing in certain communities where it drives you know, the town. In some cases, the, the tourism that's drawn in by the fishing uh, has a major effect on the economies of those towns as well. So it's uh, I know that the the folks at the who are working at the hatchery, they, they recognize it and they take a lot of pride into making, you know, good quality fish to, to deliver out there because they know this impacts people's livelihoods out there. There's, there's definitely guides and outfitters that are relying on those stock trout. There's no doubt. Man, I got a 25 inch rainbow on the fly 
last summer and i'll tell you right now that that's probably the most fun i've ever had legally in canada and uh <laughs> yes yeah. it's, it's yeah. uh unreal it's it's amazing how how those fish are it's such a different fishery and so many manitobans are kind of maybe you know you grow up fishing for pike or walleye or perch and maybe that's the only three species you really encounter um but we have these other fisheries that were are so amazing and the stock trout fishery is one of them um the fishery that's happening right now at beautiful lake for those rainbows if you've seen on the master angler list some of those rainbows are 27 inches and, and they're they're thick they're 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 incredibly thick i can't imagine if you're if you're you know throwing a fly or maybe you're just casting a mep spinner what one of those fish would do when it would hit and then turn abruptly if you don't have the right gear that fish is going to be gone uh those fish are, they fight very differently than walleye do they fight differently than pike do uh, they're incredibly powerful they're just one ball of muscle and until you sort of experience it, um, you know, it's, it's something else that I want Manitobans to do. I want Manitobans to fish for that species or those species, that set of species, because it is so incredible what they can do. And whether you choose to eat one or not, it's kind of not the point. I want people to know what's there for them if they want it. And they can find the put and take to eat and they can find the trophy fishery too, all within close proximity of those areas. And uh, people should definitely be taking advantage of it. I think Tristan has a bit of a sore spot for beautiful lake there. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been skunked on that that location more than once. So I'll I'll uh I'll chalk it up as to you know what you're talking about, but I personally don't believe there's any fish in that lake. <laughs> I that wasn't wasn't beautiful where you lost that one rainbow? No, that that was uh that was child's. No, no, not on your fly rod, but when we're in the when when we're trolling in the boat there, I think you lost that. Oh maybe maybe it's beautiful. I thought it was Lori, maybe. Oh, maybe it was Lori. Yeah, yeah, you could be right. Well, nothing, nothing makes a fish bigger than almost being caught. So yeah. I'm pretty sure it was probably That's a 30, right. 32 incher. It's probably a Manitoba record. <laughs> yeah, I was confident too, but <laughs> that was the only fish there. Uh, switching species, you mission, you you really enjoyed targeting crappie lately, and and for me, when I was growing up, crappie always seemed like some something you do down in Texas or something like that, uh, southern fishery. But you're saying it's blown up in the east here. I've heard conflicting views here. Some guys I'm talking to, some guys and gals are saying, you know, no, the, the crappy fishery is dead out in the white shell now. It's been overfished. Um, do you have any insight as to what's going on with the crappy here? And, you know, yeah. it's been a hot, hot, hot topic in Manitoba. And, like, where's it going? What's going on with it? Yeah, for sure. Well, I'll do the best I can. So um, we recognize that uh, these crappie were starting to show up in so many different lakes uh, and, you know, they were, where did they come from? That's the first question. That's, that's actually still up for debate. So, um, you know, back in the 1960s, uh, a lot of lakes were stocked with largemouth bass and they came from hatcheries in either Minnesota or, or North Dakota or South Dakota. And in those stockings of largemouth bass were likely uh, some crappie because in those hatcheries, they would kind of raise them in sort of these big circular ponds. And, and apparently there was some contamination of crappie into the largemouth bass. So places like Star Lake, uh, Minnewasta, Mary Jane were stocked with largemouth bass. And inadvertently, there was also some crappie that suddenly showed up um, that, you know, we didn't buy them, you know, back in the 60s, they, they, they came along. So if they, you know, talking now specifically about Eastern Manitoba, so they've been in Star Lake for a long time. People who follow the crappie world know that they were in Star Lake a long time. They did quite well for a while, but then their numbers declined. Uh, and then they started coming back again. 
And now when we look at it, that actually seems to be fairly common with not just crappie, but other fish species. It's common for them to have better years and they do well and they just naturally decline a bit as the different species in a lake um, sort of interact with one another. Sometimes pike do better, sometimes wally do better, perch, they, they go back and forth. And crappie seem to be doing the same thing. And again, people thought from Starlight, oh, they got overfished, overharvested, but it didn't quite really make sense because at that time, uh, very few Manitobans were looking at crappie as a food fish. They kind of were treated more like smallmouth bass. It's hard pressed to find a Manitoban who will eat a smallmouth bass, right? And in fact, sometimes I wish they would eat more because it would help us manage them a bit better. But uh, very few people were eating them, and yet their population seemed to decline a bit. And then suddenly, the crappies started showing up at some different places, in, in particular Caddy Lake, right? And so um, we don't really know for sure whether someone decided to take some crappie and move them to Caddy Lake. It wasn't wasn't by the government hand. We didn't do that. Or if the, the crappie naturally got there, because we do know that crappie did show up occasionally in West Hawk Lake because they would sometimes show up in our hatchery. Uh, we'd have juvenile or young of the year crappie show up. If we had a breach in our intake pipe, the, the hatchery is, is a, a gravity-fed system, so there are intake pipes at the bottom of the lake at, at West Hawk to get that consistent, nice cold water, well oxygenated. Uh, every once in a while, a few younger-year crappie would show up in the hatchery, so we knew that they were in West Hawk, right? So we don't know for sure whether it was just a matter of eventually enough sort of came down the creek from Star Lake into West Hawk and eventually populated enough into West Hawk that got down into the Whiteshell River to populate Caddy, or whether someone just actually scooped up some crappie, put them in the live well, drove their boat, you know, the whatever, the, the 5, 10 kilometers down the road and put them in caddy. We don't really know which way it went down. What we do know is that um, for a long time, people didn't know exactly how far crappie had gone, right? So when people first sort of discovered crappie in caddy, they were very large fish, right? And people would only fish for them in caddy and, and really not really figure them out anywhere else. And then they kind of figured out North Cross, Okay, they figured that out, but they're also then obviously in uh, South Cross because it had to get there through there. What happened is that people started discovering these these crappie populations that had never ever been fished before, and of course that's it, it's like stumbling across a hunting ground that's never been touched before. Uh, there's going to be very many of them, or in some cases very big ones. And, and when it comes to fish, it's often when they first populate, there's not a lot of them, so they don't have to compete with for food with each other, and they get large. And the reports that the next lake down of Sailing Lake of 16-inch crappie, if that's that's kind of what really I think people are often referencing. They'll say, you know what, there used to be these 16-inch crappie in either Caddy or maybe it was North Cross or maybe it was Sailing, and now they're not there anymore. And they say that we failed as managers because these 16-inch crappie aren't there. Well, first of all, 16-inch crappie is like catching a 33-inch walleye. It doesn't happen very often. And you know, if you, you can't expect that to always happen. Um, it's just not the way it works. And then, of course, as, you know, people discover those fish, either either maybe are harvesting some or maybe just through catch and release or some are dying. But even then, the population is increasing and now they're fighting, they're, they're competing for food and they're going to come down to a more normal population level, which has some small fish, some medium fish and some bigger fish. But rarely will you ever get to what I call a virgin population of no one's ever fished this before and here's these massive fish so i don't know how you look at it but you know people will say well how come we can't have that anymore it's, well because that only happens for a short period of time you can't expect that to always be there people don't like that answer because they always like hunters and fishers we always seem to remember the very best right <laughs> i'm guilty of that too I, I have a great day of duck hunting i go oh if it could only be like that one day five years ago but wait a minute if every day was like that then it wouldn't have been special 
And why would I expect that really to happen? That's not that's not the way nature works either. I shouldn't be able to shoot a bull moose every time I go moose hunting. And I shouldn't be able to catch 16-inch crappie every time I go crappie fishing. That's not the way it works. So what we see now, and we've had the University of Manitoba uh, fund some crappie research in 2018, 2019, is that the crappie populations are still in very good shape in comparison to, let's say, Ontario or Minnesota or any other places where the crappie exists. Our, our populations are still doing very, very well. So when people are saying, well, we have to reduce the crappie limit from six to something else, uh, you know, I kind of was looking at all the other, uh, you know, the other regulations across the different jurisdictions. Six is actually the lowest harvest limit across North America. There's one or two places in Minnesota where they have special regulations where it's five or four, but pretty much everywhere else for the regular limit, six is kind of the lowest as it is. So, you know, we, we thought about maybe dropping it, but there really wasn't the science to suggest we needed to do it. We still have really big crappie in, in a lot of our lakes. So all the way down the white shell chain, you know, Petulo, Jessica, White, you know, we have in big white shell, there's huge ones. There's, we have so many lakes that have, still have big crappie. Is it where it was when people were first discovered? No, it, it's not there. But there's still 15 and a half inch crappie out there, right? <laughs> and so, uh, you know, we are doing something for them. Uh, you know, and if you look back into the, the seasons and, and, and regulations that we put in, we are actually proposing a no-kill of crappie over 35 centimeters. That's never been tried anywhere in North America. No one's ever tried to create a trophy crappie fishery. But we're going to try it because our what what we've seen in the science is that our crappie grow quite quickly in the first few years, but then live way longer than the ones that are further south. So we've had crappie living to 15 years of age, which is almost unheard of for the southern, po southern populations of crappie. So what that means is that if we get crappie that are, let's say, 12, 13 inches by age four, if they live another 10 years, they're not going to grow nearly as fast, but they have a chance of actually getting to that 15, 15 and a half, 16 inch over their whole, that whole next 10 years. So if we put fish back over 35, we've got a chance of getting them to 40 and maybe even bigger, right? So that's the idea. Is it going to work? I don't know. This is a case, again, where we are trying something different. There's no science that's that suggests that this is going to work 100% but we feel we actually have the set of circumstances that if it's going to work anywhere, it's, it could work here. So we're going to give it a shot. And if it doesn't work, we can change it back. We don't, we don't have to stick with that number, right? We can change it. And I think that's another thing that, you know, in this whole package is that very few of these things are sort of, uh, you know, set it out there and it can never be undone. Like some of these things are going to change. We're still going to have, you know, every year in the angling guide, there's still going to be proposed changes again, right? With minor changes again, we're going to keep doing that. Uh, we never stop trying to refine and make things better. So now I've just rambled on about crappie forever. And <laughs> I, I get super excited. As you can tell, I get super excited about, um, you know, the the different fish we have in Manitoba. And then when we, when we do actually get data, when we have data that we can use uh, to help us, you know, inform management, it's just so much more rewarding than having to sometimes guess where we, you know, we don't always have perfect data. We have to make some some judgment calls. We don't like it, but we have to. Here's a case where we actually had some great science to actually base some 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 management strategies over. Oh, the I'm I'm here for the the 18 inch black crappie just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, the good old days, the good old days. <laughs> uh, I realize we're we're uh, man, we've been chatting quite a while, so I I I got one more question on the on the whole uh, I guess uh, fish tracking here, um, and it's. You know, you, you talk about how, how you, you guys kind of uh, gather information and all that. Um, I heard somebody say that, that you do actually 
go to like hunt fish or travel manitoba to the master angler program to get some of the numbers back from there to see if they're i guess the consistency that that you might be getting throughout uh throughout the uh the master angler program there is that is that something you guys you guys refer to when you're when you're uh, trying to manage some of these fisheries well, we definitely look at it. I mean, we, we recognize there's some flaws, right? Like people may not be necessarily honest where they've caught their fish and so forth. And that's not really the point of the Master Angler program. Uh, you know, it's, it's a great way for people to record their own catches. And if people wanted to be dishonest, they're really only kind of cheating themselves mm-hmm. <laughs> on there, right? But what I do is I look at that to see where people are targeting certain species of, of trophy size right and, and i'll say oh this this lake seems to be hot right now with this fish I, I wonder why that would be and maybe we have some data to look into that maybe there's something that shows us that the trajectory was there's going to be bigger and bigger fish to come um, sometimes it's just nice to know what people are doing out there and and what they're discovering and sometimes the anglers will discover things before we do right so it is a great data source for us and i look at it two ways one for science but I also look at it ways to plan my next fishing trip too, because <laughs> I like to target big fish too. And and if there's a hot bite out there, it's nice to see where it's going to be. Um, so I use it for those two different reasons. Um, again, it's not without its flaws for sure. And, you know, we've been maybe people maybe chastise that program, but I look at it this way. Um, it has done more for tourism in Manitoba than, than probably most of the things that I've ever done in terms of getting people excited about the chances of catching a true fish of a lifetime you can go on that site, you can see an actual real human being holding that fish quite often with a recognizable background to say, yeah, that actually is that lake. I know that lake because I know that rock, right? So this that guy is not cheating. That gal is not cheating. That is that fish from that lake. And I could go there. And not just that, if I look up, I can see the dates and I can start to make some more plans. Oh, fall time is to catch the time to catch the biggest bass in that lake. Oh, and now I'm starting to understand my fish a bit better. Brings me all that back to, you know, again, just becoming smarter anglers, better at just fish biology, understanding our fishery better. It just helps people to learn about where to target these big fish over time. Um, so useful for me, uh, useful for other, other people, I think. Um, I hope anyway, people should use it. And of course, if you want to, you know, encourage people to come to Manitoba to fish, what better thing than have a program where you can see people hold these giant fish mm-hmm. and if you're living somewhere where you can't catch uh, a 15 and a half inch crappie you know you could say i'm, I'm coming to manitoba i'm going to try this out or i want to catch a lake trout in, in athapap because you could get a 42 inch lake trout which is you know incredible uh without those pictures if someone just said it's 42 inches it's not the same as when someone's holding that giant lake trout and you know what they look like when they're big their heads look different they just look like monsters from ancient times like they're just so incredible. Uh, who wouldn't want, you know, to say, okay, I'm taking a week off in the worst time of year, weather-wise, <laughs> to go target this fish that I probably aren't going to even eat. I'm going to let it go, right? Only in Manitoba do we do crazy things like this now because of the Master Angler Program, which shows people these these incredible fish. That's that's amazing and like a great segue to to where I'm headed here. First of all, like I, I'm I'm curious. We we talked a lot of like high level policy today we've talked some ins and outs of you know what that policy looks like in the application what what's next on the radar for you personally derek what's the next adventure uh you got lined up here are you are you targeting a specific lake are you you hoping to get out on a fish even with the family or something like that uh it's uh it's been a it's been a while since we've been able to actually fish with other people so you know it's just uh it's on my radar what's on your radar my on my radar is to fish with my mom and dad 
for sure. Uh, you know, they are no longer spring chickens. Uh, neither am I. Uh, I want to fish with my mom and dad in the same boat. I don't even care where it is, what it's for. I hope it's actually uh, up at Cross Bay on, on Cedar Lake. We've My family has a tradition of fishing there since, well, actually before the road was even put in. My grandfather was there teaching school. He was flown in a long time ago. So my family has a deep connection to uh, Grand Rapids and Cedar Lake. And I've, of my of my 47 years, I think I may have missed five or six years of my entire life not fishing up there with my family. And so I miss it dearly. We usually go the first week of July. I'm not sure if we're going to be allowed to go just yet, but I want to go fishing with my mom and dad in their boat. And uh, yeah, I don't even care how many fish we catch. I just want to go with them. Amazing. So that's the that's the personal side. Professionally, like I'm still, as you can tell, I, I can't help but to think about our fishery and how awesome it is. And, uh, you know, I love the biology, but, you know, I also recognize that um, we need to do a better job of communicating well, what sort of the plans are going forward and and even this package about how this all works and i just want to get better at communicating with people um and and you know right you know if they don't like this or don't like this that's okay i don't mind i just want to talk to them about it why we do what we do i think that's probably one of the biggest um misunderstandings is sometimes why do biologists make certain suggestions or, or decisions and sometimes it might not be intuitive like why would it flip-flop from this to this right where you know it might not make sense from the casual person watching, but, you know, there are good reasons why we do change some management things um, based on what the populations are telling us. So it's that kind of communication that I get really excited about now uh, in my career. And I want to do more of that. I want to be better at it. Um, so that's, I'm not sure where that's going to lead me career wise, but uh, I just get really excited about talking about what's possible in these fisheries. And uh, I just hope that Manitoba can continue to be uh, sort of a leader in terms of, how our fisheries are you know perceived across north america like people really do talk about our fisheries and how good they are i'm hoping this package makes it better like i'm hoping you know the no kill of, of those big fish bring more people here and i want people to talk about some of the ideas we have here as you know as sort of the next step in, in progressive fisheries management so well derek we, we we've had you on the on blast here for almost two hours now and uh <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you from from my perspective, I certainly get excited about um, currently where our fisheries are in Manitoba, and the idea that you as the government are thinking about the long term sustainability of of those, and uh, like th that that really rings true to me now as as a, as a father, things change, and my kids are young, and we're just starting to get into fishing, and they have a blast doing it. So I I feel like our fisheries are in good hands right now with yourself being, uh, being in one of the seats there looking after things. So, so thank you for that. Um, thank you for coming on the podcast here. Um, before we do have a little final round table here, I just want to, uh, why don't you tell everybody, uh, this is a kind of two parter here, uh, where, where they can give some feedback, where can they find out any more, uh, information on the uh, Manitoba recreational angling strategy and uh, last part, what can we be doing as anglers just in general to be helping out? Yeah, no, those are great questions. So I'll, I'll start with uh, the package. So we want people to comment uh, on our website, which is called Engage MB. So Engage MB is something that the province is now using for uh, a bunch of its different uh, policy decisions. So if you go to in Engage MB, one of the uh, boxes you could say is this angling strategy. There's a few others on there, but if you click on that, 
there are ways to either take a poll to sort of take a survey in terms of whether you like it or like agree with this package or not agree. There is a, a way to comment publicly so people can see your comments. But also I think most importantly is the last option, which is to send your feedback. And that's what we really want. Uh, you know, it's really nice when people can actually take the time and just send us a, 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 a piece of information through that saying, I really like this portion of it. I like the licensing part. We didn't even talk about the one day license yet. You know, they might say, I really like the one day license. That's great. But they might say, I don't like the live bait. Or maybe they'll say, I don't like this. And we want people to make those comments, right? And it, it's so much better when they can put some thought behind as to why as well. Rather than just saying, you know, I like it or I don't like it, those are, you know, great. But it's also nice when people can give honest feedback, and people say, you know, okay, uh, we heard your discussion, we understand the risk of live bait, and we, you know, can understand it, but we want you to maybe modify it this way. Like people have ideas, let's hear them, right? Like we're not the only people who have ideas. Like there's lots of people who have great ideas about how to manage fisheries. Let's hear them. Let's get them all on the table. Uh, whether they're going to all come to fruition or not, we don't know. But let's have it all on the table as best we can, and then we can go forward from there. And I think at least that way, people will know that they've been heard. Like, that's so important. People need to know that they've been heard. Even if we don't decide to do exactly what they're saying, we need to hear them. And people need to know that, yes, we took your consider your ideas into consideration. That's so important. So again, if you go to Engage MB, uh, that's probably the best way to do it. But on the other hand, if you, uh, you know, if you know your local fisheries person in the regional offices across Manitoba, or even if you know some of the conservation officers, or if you happen to know someone in, in head office, phone them, email them, text them, talk about it, say, hey, I heard about this. Uh, I want to just send a comment and I can send an email. And we are compiling those things. So, I mean, as you can imagine, I have uh, friends and well, maybe enemies, friends and enemies all across this province <laughs> that know me, they know my email and they send me, uh, you know, good info and good comments. And we're compiling all those things. All of us in fisheries branch and the officers, we're all, we're compiling those in one spot. I pity the person who's going to have to try to sort through all of them because there's going to be literally hundreds of emails and hundreds of comments and they're going to be so diverse, but that's great. That's what we wanted. So that's the, the first piece of that answer. The second piece that you asked in terms of how anglers can help, I think, you know, um, the best thing that anglers can do is is talk to other anglers about their experiences, whether it's with both this proposal or just other things that they're doing and talk about, you know, um, different things that they've learned and then start to socialize that education saying, hey, I just learned today that uh, crappie are uh, the males guard the nest. I had no idea that, you know, bass and crappie, the females lay the eggs, but the males actually guard their eggs. Isn't that cool? Right start having those conversations with people so that everyone kind of just elevates their overall knowledge, right? About the fisheries and people will start caring more and they're going to go, Oh, okay. Now that I know more about the age structure, I will harvest the smaller ones and the younger ones. It's better for the population than harvesting those older ones that are better breeders. People will start just doing that intuitively. They won't need to be told by someone. They'll just know that's what, that's what you do. And then hopefully that bleeds off into other things. People say, well, I'm not going to throw my minnow tub out because this is a spawning area uh, for, for walleye just right close to my area. I don't want this plastic in amongst these rocks. This is not going to be good for the environment. So the overall environmental ethic, I just want to increase. And I think the more anglers can do that, the better. Uh, join an angling group, whether it's uh, Manitoba Wildlife Federation, they're really ramping up their angling uh, division in Manitoba, whether it's an, a national fishing organization, whether it's things like fly fishers or, or others uh, where you can get together with other anglers. There are volunteer opportunities for those uh, for those groups where government sometimes will reach out and say, hey, we need someone on a boat for a day or two. Can can there be a member that can, can go along and just lend a hand? 
if you make those connections, you're you're more likely to be able to be drawn into what we are actually doing in government as well. Um, and if you belong to those groups, your voice is heard even louder, right? We can we can hear you because we have you have uh, an organization now that can represent anglers and and bring your concerns forward, not just when we want to make a change, but at all times of the year, right? It should be a conversation. It shouldn't be, uh, you know, once a year we're going to throw a rock at the government and throw a rock at Derek. Like that's not the way it should work. <laughs> like we should be talking all the time. Like we should be talking, you know, once a month about what's going on out there and is there something we can do and what should we be watching out for? Um, that's how you know, relationships are made. And that way when decisions are made positive or negative, at least that relationship is started and we understand each other versus starting from a place of not understanding and then assuming the worst, right? So, Eric, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I think you've made a clear case as to why government needs to step up to the plate in the communications department. And I think I'm really excited to see that the the government has decided to engage this way and uh, take take on that responsibility and that that leadership, because I, I think you're right, it will make a difference in how people not only interact with policy, but how we interact with our environment as a whole. So thanks so much for that. Also, huge thank you for the work you do. I know sometimes uh, working in the public service, it can be, um, I don't want to say thankless, but uh, <laughs> uh, maybe there's not all the glory that, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, Stephen Ranella might experience. So uh, thanks for the work you do. It's appreciated. It's so important for how we, we move forward together. And I think uh, I, I just had one more burning question on the top of my head for you here. And that's kind of like, I, I'm looking at the totality of where we are in Manitoba. We're blessed with not only so many lakes, but just like an extreme diversity of freshwater species, fish species. I'm looking at the poster behind you on the wall there, um, the book that we both shared too. Um, so many opportunities in Manitoba. Um, we're trying to improve it clearly through the strategy as well. Um, if you had one like kind of hopeful or kind of excited feeling for the future of fishing in Manitoba, like what kind of, what's that hope or what's that vision or that, that aspiration? Hmm. Yeah. You know, I just want people to, uh, so I've probably been harping on this while. I just want people to be, you know, just elevate their overall knowledge and then understanding and then caring of the environment. And, and, and fishing is a great way to introduce people to that. You know, we have a hundred over 150,000 licensed anglers in Manitoba and even more kids. So we have, you know, a participation rate that's actually way higher than most other jurisdictions. Manitoba is one of the few places that actually has seen increased participation in angling than anywhere else in North America. So we have an opportunity here for, all of us as Manitobans just to really understand our natural environment better through the sport and activity of fishing. Um, you know, whether it's new Canadians, uh, whether it's, it's people who maybe haven't picked up a fishing rod in a long time, everyone has a chance to really participate in this activity, which we love dearly and we want more people to do it. And I want more people to do it. And while they're doing it, I want them to just to, to, to understand why they're doing it. And I want them to eat some fish too. Like I'm not, you know, just straight catching these, like eating these fish is important. Like I said, it's, it's, it's important for you, uh, you know, physically and, and to have that connection. Uh, so it's, it's just, uh, my wish is for everyone to just participate in this industry as much as they can uh, and love it as much as I do. Maybe that's, I'll finish it that way. I, I just absolutely love, I love to be able to study the natural environment. I feel humbled and honored to do it to be honest and i thank you for for you know for thanking me to work in this field but i feel the one who's very grateful that i get the opportunity to work 
with the fish, but even more importantly, with the people who fish. And I'm humbled by the the opportunity to serve the public. I, I really do. So it's what drives me to keep going on the on the days where it's not easy. Is that I know that you know what I can do is 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 good for Manitobans overall, and and that's what keeps me positive and keeps me going forward. So thanks again for this opportunity, because again, this is so special to have this opportunity to talk to this many people at one time. It's awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, we wish you luck not only in your uh, career, but also on the water. So we hope we see you out there maybe one, one of these days uh, and uh, you know, keep that line tight. Thank you. And that's it. That's all for this episode today. We thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I know I learned a lot. I got a new perspective on how things work internally with the government and why things come out the way they do. So uh, it, I, th- I think some takeaways for me were, hey, it's important to participate in some of these activities when they ask for feedback. And it's also important to try to understand where these policies are coming from. They're not just made in a vacuum, that they, they, they occur because we need to respond collectively to, to a situation. So um, thanks, Derek, for coming on. And if we wanted to turn our attention to what's going on online for us, Sheldon, you're still conducting our hat giveaway every week here. Is that true? Yeah, it's a hat giveaway. And there's also, we've given away a few other things too. And I've, eventually, if there, we get enough entries, I'd like to do like a bigger giveaway, maybe one week if we have a bunch of entries. Maybe we can give away something, uh, something a little bit more significant, like a gift card maybe or something. But if you guys don't know what that is, we're doing a summer-long giveaway every week. All you got to do is tag us in your phone, photos or use hashtag Panoramic Outdoors, um, and then you'll be entered into a draw. And at, every Saturday, we'll draw a name, and basically, they get a, they get something from us. And usually, it's a hat, but like I said, hopefully, we can make that a little bit bigger here uh, as the summer rolls on. So check that out. And while I'm talking about the store, I'm talking about hats. Not only do we have all our hats in stock right now, we also have um, our some of our blaze orange hats. So if you're looking to get a hat for the summer, or sorry, for the fall while you're going uh, moose, deer hunt, elk hunting, or whatever you are, and you need a blaze orange hat, uh, check ours out. Not only that, we've got our summer t-shirts coming in. By the time this releases, I believe we'll have them, and they'll be uh, ready to go into the go into the store. So check that out go to our website www.panoramicoutdoors.com and we also have those scoop neck sweaters for the ladies they're super nice carly has actually been wearing them a little bit there tristan did uh did you get any feedback from her like she liked them yeah yeah i was gonna chat about that actually because it's kind of funny um i just made a passing comment i was like uh because uh we had posted with a picture of her with the scoop neck on our our social media feed there and uh i'd ask oh yeah, thanks for being the model. And she's like, oh, I like this sweater. I was like, oh, that's good. She's like, no, I, I really like this sweater. Like this is one of the most comfy sweaters that I've ever had. So again, I think hopefully we hit the comfort factor out of the park here. I know I didn't get to try it on myself um, due to sizing restraints, <laughs> but uh, we've heard it's comfortable. I think it looks awesome. Uh, so the design team killed it on this one. And uh Yeah. Uh, so far, all the feedback on the new Scoop Next has been positive. That's great to hear. I might try and squeeze into one. 
This, okay, so first of all, I was going to make some, a comment about, hey, Tristan, you must be Chase's brother because Chase made the exact comment or joke that he hasn't tried one on yet in the last intro. And then Chase tried to double up on the joke, so he's like minus like five tonight. It's a dad joke, man. Yeah, exactly. It's a dad joke. Um, Sheldon, one question about the contest. Can people enter multiple times into this contest here? Yeah, absolutely. We we just all all we're doing is trying to encourage you to get outside and take some uh, fo- f- photographs. Um, so it could be anything. It could be gardening. It could be. Uh, I know a lot of people are sending in fishing pictures. Obviously, that's a popular thing to do outside. But like, if you're going hiking or some good scenery, uh, even your dog outside. I know uh, Tristan's dog, my dog. Hopefully, Chase gets his wiener dog. But we all like seeing the the dog pictures. So send in whatever you can. You're outside. Take a picture and send it to us. You'll be entered, and it's that easy. Well, that sounds great. I, I've been loving the gear coming in. Um, I've been loving all the photos coming to you with the, the hashtag and both dimensions. It's cool to check out just what people are up to. I think that's maybe selfishly why we do that contest too, is just to see what everyone's up to across Manitoba, Canada, and the U.S. Take us from the U.S., man. I'd love to see more stuff from the U.S. Um, and so without further delay, we thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to rate us. Uh, on any podcast listening app that you may be using give us the five star not the one star I remember one guy gave us a one star but a glowing review one time make sure it's that five star and leave us a comment we love feedback and so if we see you on the water that's great if not keep those lines tight your edge on the blade and your stick on the ice it's playoff season here <laughs>